This is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5 at WRAU, 88.3 Ocean City. And as always, we're live at WAMU.org. I'm Michael King. That will do it for me. I'll talk with you next time. Have a great night. Stay dry and stay safe. The big broadcast is next. Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and speaking of the World Series, and who in Washington isn't speaking about the World Series? We're all in for the Nats. But you may not know the story about the 1927 World Series when Babe Ruth was kidnapped. That's because it never happened. But you'll hear it tonight, nonetheless, on The Adventures of Babe Ruth. We'll find out who Jack Benny liked in the 1940 October Classic, and we'll hear real mysteries on Gunsmoke and Dragnet. Destination Freedom features the story of Harriet Tubman just before her Hollywood premiere next month. And because you can never have too much Angela Lansbury, we'll continue to salute her 94th birthday. She plays a medical researcher on Stars Over Hollywood and the waitress, Mildred Rogers, in Somerset Mom's masterpiece, of Human Bondage, co-starring Brian Ahern. So much to listen to, so little time. So you really need to clear your mind of all the problems that dogged you last week and ignore what might crop up beginning tomorrow. Turn on your imagination and listen to The Village of Virtue Matter, the April 27, 1958 episode of CBS's Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Ben Orloff, Mr. Dollar, at Continental Insurance Company in New York. Oh, yes, Mr. Orloff. What can I do for you? Did you ever hear of a place called Virtue? Are you kidding? I'm very serious. Oh, wait a minute. Virtue, South Carolina? That's right. You, uh, want me to go down there? Yes, if you will. <laughs> do you have a bulletproof vest and a couple of extra handguns I can take along? Well, my one suggestion would be that you do not take along any firearms. After all, ex-gangster. Yeah, I see what you mean. All right, what do you want me to do? Our representative has his office in Georgetown. He can give you the whole story. His name is Joseph Pigatello. Got it, Joseph Pigatello. Smokey Pigatello? The guy whose name was linked with Murder Incorporated a few years back? Yes, Dollar Joe Smokey Pigatello. You, uh, sure you want this assignment? Well, I'll tell you this, Mr. Orloff. Yes? If you don't have to pay off on my insurance policy before I'm through... Well, mister, this is going to cost you a whopping big expense account. Bob Bailey in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Continental Insurance Company, Georgetown, South Carolina office. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the Village of Virtue matter. Expense account item one, $47 even, transportation and all the incidentals I could think of, Hartford, Connecticut to Georgetown, South Carolina. Item two, a dollar for a cab to Continental's office on Screven Street. Hi, Dollar. I'm Joe Pigatello. Glad to see you. Sit down. Thanks. Now, look, Joe, before we go into this matter, there's something I'd like to know. <laughs> sure, pal. Ask it. Just what are you doing in the insurance business? Look, you remember back in New York just before Tom Dewey took over as DA? The great holy racket buster? Yeah, and I'm sure you do. Okay. Well, I was just a young punk then, but I was a bright one. Ambitious, you know. Finished up my high school, started taking law. You studied law? Why not? I could have cleaned up. You know, mouthpiece for some of the mob, some of the boys I knocked around with. But then Dewey came along, broke up the racket, so I gave it up. To do what, Joe? Oh, you know, this and that. Chicago for a while with some of the boys Al Capone left behind. And down near the border at San Diego for a while. Smuggling then... narcotics across from Mexico? Then some of us tried Las Vegas, but we didn't get any... What was that crack? Well... Listen, I'm clean. You make a crack like that, you can prove it, okay. If you can't, don't say it. You were telling me how you got into the insurance business. All right. When I'm taking you on this case, don't talk like that. The gents I deal with don't like it. And don't forget, whatever you think about them, you could also be wrong. Okay, Joe. Two kinds are wrong, Dollar. Just plain wrong and dead wrong. You see what I mean? All right, as I was saying, uh, how I got in this insurance racket. As you were saying. Well, some of the boys from New York and Chicago and around did pretty good. Instead of blowing all that dough on booze and dames and big times, they were smart. They leased an old plantation up in the valley north of here on the P.D. River. A old Caraway plantation. It's right next to the town of Virtue. Great name for a hideout, I'll say that. I didn't say hideout, Dollar. It was just a nice, quiet place where they could live it up in a nice, quiet way. And at the same time, they wouldn't have any cops around their neck. No police in Virtue? <laughs> Nobody but old Polly Caraway. Anyhow, after six, eight months of taking it easy, mint juleps and hunting and fishing instead of being on the lam all the time, well, Johnny, you wouldn't believe it. What do you mean? Well, they all settled down there to spend the rest of their life. They all went respectable. Every last one of them. You sure of that? Well, it's been 20 years now. Can you be any more sure than that? I don't know. But uh, go on with what you were saying. All right. I, I got an idea. I signed up with this little insurance company. Then I went up to Virtue and made the pitch. They're all respectable now, and they got to make like respectable people and cover themselves with a lot of insurance. And it worked? <laughs> you remember Lefty Stemper? The old-time numbers king from Chicago? Right. Bookies, slot machines, everything. Old pal of mine. So when he told the rest he was buying insurance, well, Johnny, I got policies on every one of them. The rest of the town, too. On their life, their homes, everything. Okay. Now let's get to the point. What's happened up there in virtue? Trouble, Johnny. Old man Caraway phoned me. What kind of trouble? Well, 20 years now, the boys and the people in Virtue have been getting along fine. The boys have been behaving themselves, and the, the people in town are all nice people. Until a couple of weeks ago. What happened? Willie Magoon had himself a nice little fishing boat. Had it ever since he went straight and moved in up there. 20 years ago. Now somebody stole it. Well, why don't you just pay off his claim and forget it? Listen, a couple of days after that, Mr. Avery, that runs the general store in Virtue, had his boat stolen. So you'll have to pay another claim. But small ones, Joe. Well, would you listen... Ever since then, not a day has gone by that somebody hasn't had something stolen from him. Mostly the people in virtue. Boats, cars, money, furniture, anything you can think of. 
The people blame the boys, and the boys blame the people. And, Johnny, there's going to be a civil war in virtue unless somebody finds out who's doing this. And if that happens, there's going to be a lot of killing. And, well, with all the insurance I've sold, me and the company are going to be in trouble. Well, can't you get the state police to come in? State police? Invite you? You said it's a real respectable community now. Yeah, sure it is. But, well, dragging them in might really start things off. That's why I had to send for you. (sighs) Look, why don't we go up there so I can see for myself? (laughs) Sure, Johnny, sure. But, hey, uh, open your coat. What? I mean, if you're going to take along that lemon squeezer... Well, take my advice and don't. <laughs> You've a pretty sharp eye, Joe. Johnny, boy, I can spot a shoulder holster a mile away. But so can some of the boys up in the valley on the plantation. And I don't want you to end up with a slug between your eyes. Real respectable people. Well, uh, shall we go? Uh, my car's outside. Into the valley of death rode the 600. Huh? At least a couple of them. What are you talking about? Uh, nothing, Joe. Let's go. <laughs> And now, act two of yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Village of Virtue Matter. Joe Pigatello, erstwhile gangster turned insurance agent, led me out to his car and we headed north out of Georgetown, South Carolina. After 20 miles or so, we swung onto a side road paralleling the P.D. River. And finally, we came to the old Caraway Plantation. Acres and acres of huge old live oak trees festooned with Spanish moss. Flowers, millions of them. Azaleas, iris, roses, rhododendron bushes aflame with color in the afternoon sun. Then, at the end of a broad, tree-lined path, the fine old colonial mansion with its towering pillars. The property faced the curving, lazy yellow river. And lying across it was a broad expanse of marshy grass, crisscrossed here and there by canals, through which the slaves in olden times hauled the rice crop to the riverboats. Yeah, it was a beautiful spot. A calm, quiet, peaceful spot. Apparently. Well, here we are, Johnny. Let's go in to see if anybody... What? Hey, hey, hold it. Hold it, you punks. It's me, Smokey. Smokey! Who else? Put those guns away. You want to get in trouble? Don't you guys know no better to come barging in this way without letting us know you're coming? Come on, Johnny. Sure. Nice, peaceful spot, huh? Who's that you got with you, Smokey? Boys, this is Johnny Dollar. He's from the insurance company. Uh, Johnny, uh, this is Bo Magoon. Yeah, hi. And uh, this is Lefty Stemper. Hiya. Johnny Dollar, huh? And the shrimp there is Flippy Lakovich. Hiya, Johnny. I'm pleased to meet you. What? That's away, Flippy. What did you bring here, Smokey? A dick or something? Yeah, Dollar, what's the idea of packing a ride? All right, all right. Let him go, you guy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Look, he's on our side. He's up here to find the stuff that's been stolen. Yeah. We don't need no outside help. Oh, you've uh, found who's behind the thefts, huh, Lefty? No. If it's any of your business, it's my th- business. You're interrupting me. Yeah, Dollar, shut up. I say we'll find out who's coming over here from virtue and taking our stuff ourselves. And when we do, we'll eliminate them. Right back to the old days, huh? If we got to, to protect our rights. How about letting me have my gun? Well? Here, that flippy, he wants his gun. <laughs> you make a move to Dollar and I'll flip you so fast that Oh, you'll... you mean like this? <laughs> hey, 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 it's Flippy got flipped. boy, Johnny. <laughs> the shrimp finally got it. <laughs> hey, Johnny Dollar, you're okay. Anybody else want to get smart? <laughs> he, he caught me off of the gun. You're an expert, have Flippy. Well, you ain't any more. Now, Lefty, I'll take my gun. Oh, oh sure, yeah. 
Yeah, you're okay, Johnny. Dude. All right. Now, let's get things straight. I'm not the cops, but I'll drag them in if necessary. Oh, no, listen. You listen. I'm going to try to stop what's going on around here, and if any one of you interferes, I'll have you locked up so fast you won't know what's happened to you. No, no, wait a minute. Now, listen to me, will you, Dollar? Well, look, I, I guess we're all kind of shaky. You know, we're... <clears throat> well, we, we're sort of uh, somewhat upset by the events of the past couple of weeks or two. You know what I mean? Lefty, Joe told me that if the burglaries, robberies, whatever they are, go on much longer, there's liable to be a war between you and the people of the town. We ain't worried, none. We got enough guns and ammo stashed away around and shut up. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, Lefty, sure. I'm sure you have. But if you ever expect to make peace again with the townspeople, if you expect to stay on here... We got at least 15 years to go. Shut up. Okay. All right, look... All we got here is our uh, hunting rifles and we're shotguns and uh, a couple of pistols. In case of a snake, you know, while we're hunting or fishing here in the swamps. <clears throat> a lot of cottonmouths around here, you know. Yeah, that's a fact, Johnny. The point is, I didn't come here without providing for any and every exigency. Uh, what's that mean? Oh, boy, what a dope. <clears throat> it means if anything happens to him, we're dead. Now, uh, ain't that... Excuse me, eh... Uh, isn't that right, Dollar? Right. You see? Now, give me a hand, cooperate with me, and maybe we can clear this thing up. Don't? And I have only one alternative. What's that mean? Shut up. And that's to have you legally ousted from here, out of the state if necessary. Oh, now, look, Dollar. We'll cooperate. Now, I don't mind telling you, we love this place. Look, it's the only real home we got. Flippy and Sadie, we got Bull and Mary and me and Nora. Maybe... Maybe we got records, all right. Uh, some of us maybe did time for some of the little jobs we pulled, huh? But we've been playing it straight since we come here all along the line. It's like I told you, Johnny. Yeah, honest. Look, that's the way we want to keep it. If the people in virtue will just leave us, keep it that way. And, and you know something? I, I don't get it. Don't get what, Lefty? Well, over 20 years, everything's been nice and okay, huh? Now they got to start this. What about the losses they've suffered? They ask me, Dollar, they're phonies to cover up for robbing our stuff. Nobody asked you. Oh. Maybe they think the same way about your losses. Huh? Say. Yeah. Now, where's the owner of this place, uh, Carraway? Oh, yeah, he's over in Virtue at his office. Office? Sure, he's a mayor and a police. All right. Joe and I are going over to see him. Now, now, now Johnny... Oh, no, Smokey, uh, will you please don't go? They see you guys coming from here, they're going to take a shot at you. That Caraway told me so. Yeah. Sure. We'll take that chance. Come on, Joe. Well, uh, I- I'll tell you, Johnny. Tell me along the way. Come on. The more I thought about the whole thing, the sillier it all seemed. Yet it was obvious that even after 20 years, Lefty and Bull and Flippy might think of only one way to settle their problems. With a gun. And if the people of virtue were feeling the same way. But as Joe and I walked along the main, the only street of the little town, there were no signs of hostility or even suspicion toward us. Now, now look, Johnny. If those bums back at the plantation are making this trouble... Why? Why would they, Joe? Well, that's what I don't get. But what if they don't like your interfering and decide to knock you off? Then I'll probably go to my grave unmourned, unremembered. Yeah, but you told Lefty you'd provided for every exigent... Well, for if anything should happen to you. Yeah, and he and the boys believed it. And if anything does, the... Huh? Yeah. All I can hope is that they keep on believing.
And now, Act Three of yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Village of Virtue Matters. Joe Pigatello and I walked the main street of Virtue, South Carolina, unmolested, virtually unnoticed. And we found the mayor, Parley Carraway, in the little shack that served for an office. I'm also the police chief, Mr. Dollar. Don't you forget that, sir. And you found no clue as to who has been committing the robberies? No, sir. None whatsoever. But who else would do it? They're all three of them ex-gangsters. Sure. Ex-gangsters. Why, Mr. Carraway? Why would these men suddenly want to make trouble with their friends, your townspeople? I don't know. I honestly don't know. Unless, of course, they think they can take over the way they used to take over gangs in the old days. After 20 years of a happy relationship? Mr. Carraway, they never made a bit of trouble in all that time. I know it, I know it. But the fact remains that unless this trouble stops... After all, Virtue was here long before they came. Unless it stops, I say, I shall have to break their lease and make them leave the plantation. That's too fine a property, sir, to... Mr. Carraway, that plantation isn't exactly what you'd call a paying proposition for a long time, was it? Well, it has been uh, since those men leased it. Oh, they pay you pretty well for it, huh? Enough to keep it in good repair. And... Hey, that's a beautiful ring you're wearing. Huh? Oh, oh, yes. Yeah. Two and a half carat diamonds, sir. Yeah. And is that your nice new car out front? Yeah, it certainly is. Ain't it pretty? About $8,000 pretty. Yeah. Hey, didn't you have a new one last year, too, Mr. Carraway? Of course. I try to have one every year. But now, Jim. Gentlemen... Tell me one thing, Mr. Carraway. Uh, yes, sir. If you really think the robberies around here are going to cause so much trouble. Oh, I do. I do. That's why I contacted uh, Mr. Picatello. Well, why haven't you called in the state police? Because I am the mayor of Virtue. I'm the police department. And I can take care of these things myself. And now that you gentlemen have witnessed the bad blood between these gangsters and the people of the town, well, sir, I'm going to throw them off that plantation. In spite of all the money they've been paying you? Yes, sir, and I'm sure you gentlemen will back me up in... Uh, all the money, did you say? Enough to keep you well-dressed, well-fed, and fancy cars. And now look here, sir. Do you realize how much that property will bring? Well, that depends. How much have you been offered? I'll tell you how much. A hundred and twenty-four thousand. How did you know? You just told me. Well, now, listen. You also it? told me why you've been robbing the people of virtue and those men at the plantation to stir up bad feeling, uh, give you an excuse to get them out. What? Johnny, you're right. Uh, now, just... just Tear away, if just... I do call in the state police, it'll be to have you locked up. No. And if Joe here has any sense, he'll tell the insurance company to bring charges of fraud against you. You said it. Oh, but the money. Think of all the money I could make selling the old place. Now, where's the stuff that's been stolen? It hasn't been harmed. It's stored away, carefully stored away. I was going to give it back when when those men left, and, and I could sell the place. Give them their stuff, too? Well, I'd make up for it in cash, every cent of it in cash, yes. I'd, I'd say it was for breaking the lease. Truly, Mr. Dollar. Now, you listen, you old money-grubbing crook. You're in trouble. You... You'll call in the state police? You bet I will. Unless... Unless what, sir? First, you lay off the plantation. You've leased it to those men. Let them have it. And return all the stuff you stole. Oh, but if they find out... Well, you figured how to get it away from them. Now figure out how to get it back. Discover it, anything you like. Well, the point is that if you don't get it back, I'll tell them where it is. Oh. And you know what that'll mean. Oh, yes, sir, Mr. Dollar. I'll, I'll get it back. Also respect that lease. I believe it has 15 more years to run. Yes, sir, it has. I will. Okay. I... Do all this and Joe and I will forget the whole thing. But if you don't, 
and Joe will be checking on you. You said it. Oh, but I will, I will, Mr. Dollar. I promise you I'll okay. get right on this. Come on, Joe. Let's go back to the plantation and have a drink with some respectable citizens. Yeah, this insurance business really has some funny ones. And I guess it's the funny ones that balance out the bad, the tragic cases. Anyhow, I like it. Expense account total, including the trip back to Hartford. Uh, call it a hundred bucks even. And in view of our little, uh, secret, Joe, well, maybe you'd better pay it out of petty cash. And listen, those pals of yours, you better drop in on them now and then to make sure they do stay on the straight and narrow. As well as that old coot caraway. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Here is our star to tell you about next week's story. Next week, a strange series of fires. And believe me, the reason for them is a strange one, too. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, originates in Hollywood and is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone, who also wrote today's story. Heard in our cast were Frank Nelson, Billy Hallett, Jack Crucian, Peter Leeds, Gil Stratton, and Will Wright. Be sure to join us next week, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Dan Coverly speaking. the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. The Village of Virtue Matter, from yours truly, Johnny Dollar, in the spring of 1958, and from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. The World Series starts in two days. Go Nats! And as you doubtless know, it's a Washington team's first appearance in the Fall Classic since 1933, when the Senators played the Giants. The series was broadcast on both NBC and CBS radio that year, but near as we could make out, no recordings exist of the play-by-play accounts of those games. Damn. So, we're going to salute the October Classic with a story about Babe Ruth in the 1927 series. It's a completely fabricated tale told by a made-up sports writer in a series called The Adventures of Babe Ruth. It was a show syndicated by the U.S. Navy as a recruiting tool in 1949, a year after the babe had passed away. His life's in danger in this fictitious episode of The Adventures of Babe Ruth, released December 11, 1949. Play ball! Play ball with Babe Ruth! Play ball with the Navy! The United States Navy brings you the adventures of Babe Ruth. And here to tell you about the immortal Babe is the man who knew him so well, his pal, the popular sports reporter, Steve Martin. It was the seventh game of the World Series. The score was tied and Babe Ruth was at bat. A home run would win the series for the Yankees and new laurels for the big fella. 
But I sat there praying that he would strike out and so save his life. We'll bring you the exciting story in just a moment. It was the last game of the season, and all of the Yankees were on the field except one. The greatest Yankee of them all was mysteriously missing. And in the clubhouse, little manager Huggins was having a fit. Me, I was My thing. How do you like that, Steve? The game starts in a minute and the babe isn't here. Gee, I hope nothing happened to him, Hug. What could happen to him? He's not having a good time. Oh, no, Hug. The big fellow wouldn't miss a game on purpose, especially with the World Series starting tomorrow. That's just it. The series starts tomorrow, so he figures today's game isn't important. Even though the stands are jammed with fans who want to see him belt one. That guy is getting too big for his britches. Now, you're wrong, Hug. Babe wouldn't deliberately miss a game. He'd rather play ball than eat. Then where is he? I wish I knew. I'm worried. Well, the big fellow's the guy who ought to be worried. I'll blister his ears plenty when he shows up, and then some. You can tell him that. Well, I've got to get down to the field. I waited a while and then went up to the press box. All through the game, I kept my eye on the Yankee dugout, but the big fellow didn't appear. When the game was over and I followed the Yankees back to the clubhouse, Babe still hadn't shown up. I was getting worried for real. And manager Huggins' face was as black as a thundercloud when the big fella walked in. The babe's clothes were torn, his face was cut and bruised, and his knuckles were skinned. Huggins looked him up and down, and the players got quiet. So you finally decided to drop in and pay us a visit, huh, babe? Uh, I'm sorry I missed the game, Hug, but... But what? Oh, I... I couldn't make it. Ah, you were having too much fun brawling with your bum friends, huh? My friends aren't bums. Anyhow, I wasn't with my friends. Well, who were you fighting with? I... Never mind. Never mind? Look, I I wish I could tell you, Hug, but I can't. Oh, you can't, huh? Well, I can tell you something, Mr. Big Shot. First off, I'm fining you $500. Huh? Now, wait a minute. if the World Series wasn't starting tomorrow, I'd fire you off the team. Now you get this. No one man, not even Babe Ruth, can walk out on a game and then refuse to explain why. When this series is over, I'm trading you off the club. You're through. All finished as a Yankee. Oh, Babe, what's this all about? Where were you this afternoon? Skip it, Steve. Skip it? Are you out of your mind? Hug's fit to be tied. Unless you square yourself in a hurry, he'll do as he said, trade you down the river after the World Series. I may not be around after the series. What? What do you mean? Uh, i got to tell somebody about this. Uh, look, Steve, you're not to print it or tell Hug. Promise me that? Well, uh... okay, babe, shoot. Well, when I came out of the hotel today to go to the ballpark, a fellow stopped me. Just an ordinary-looking fellow, but with two fingers missing on his right hand, mm-hmm. like old three-finger brown of the Cubs. He seemed awful upset about something. Excuse me, babe. I, uh, I mean, Mr. Ruth. Oh, babe's okay, buddy. What can I do for you? It's, uh, it's my kid, my little boy. He's, he's awful sick. Infantile paralysis. Oh, that's too bad. The, uh, the doctor thought that... Oh, my boy's a great fan of yours. He's got a scrapbook full of pictures. The doctor thought if you could come over for a minute and see my boy, it might help him get well. Oh, sure. I'll come over right after the game. Oh, can't you come now, babe? It's just a few minutes from here, and I've got my car. I can get you back to the stadium in plenty of time for the game. Okay, then. Let's go. 
We walked over to his car. It was a sedan, and he opened the door. I started to get in, and I noticed three other guys in the back seat. I didn't like their looks, Steve, but before I could do anything, the fellow behind me gave me a hard push and sent me sprawling into the car. And then one of the guys hit me behind the ear with a blackjack. Holy smokes, then what, babe? Well, when I woke up, Steve, I was in a room without much furniture in it. A guy with the fingers missing, who seemed to be the boss of the crowd, was there. And three other lads. There was a gravelly-voiced little guy who held a gun on me. And two gorillas had been in the car. Well, the boss one gave me a glass of water. And then he made his problem. Okay, babe, the Yanks are nine of five favorites to win a World Series. But they can't win if you don't try. If you don't hit any home runs. So I want you not to try. You mean... You mean you want me to throw the series? Why, you dirty... Stay where you are, big boy. I got a very itchy trigger. <laughs> you can't scare Only me. Only a Look, jerk I... don't know enough to be scared sometimes, babe. You're no jerk, so listen. The Yanks are gonna lose a series. Eh? Yeah? That's what you think. I know. When they lose, you'll get 50,000 bucks. But if you cross us up, you'll get the business. And how? Well, babe, what do you say? This is what I say. You did it, my you I knocked the gun away from the squeaky voice guy, dropped the boss man with a right. The two big gorillas jumped me, and then a little run hit me with his gun butt. Pretty soon I got the gun or blackjack on the noggin, and I went to sleep again. Well, I woke up this time, Steve. They were dumping me out of their car up near Yonkers. I managed to pick up a ride, and uh, you know the rest, Steve. Holy cow. But, babe, why didn't you tell that to Hug? Oh, those mugs said if I did, they'd put a bullet in Hug, too. And I know they meant business. Oh. Well, well, don't just sit there, babe. Come on, we'll go to the police. No, no, Steve. I don't know who those guys are or where they are. And even if I did, they'd deny everything. It'd just cause a huge publicity stink. And if we lose the series, it might kill baseball. And what are you going to do? What do you suppose... I'll do my darndest to win the series, of course. But those mugs said they'd kill you if you did. Oh, they were just bluffing. Don't give me that, babe. You said just before you were sure they meant business. Now, babe, there's only one thing to do. You can't play in this series. Are you kidding? No. Your life is at stake. I'll save it, Steve. No lousy racketeers are going to scare me or dirty up the greatest game in the world, either. Now, get out of here, please, Steve, and let me go to bed. I've got a World Series coming up tomorrow. I'm convinced that most of the gray hairs I've got today started sprouting in that World Series. Every time the big fella made a hit, I caught my breath and listened for the sound of a pistol over the noise of the crowd. The games went to three and three. And then the seventh and deciding game came up in the stadium. Oh, babe. Yeah? What is it, Steve? Look, babe, this is the deciding game. If you win it, you... You might... Steve, let's not go into that again. Go on back up to the press box. I'm going out to right field. Both pitches were hot. And they went into the ninth inning tied one and one. Pennock set the enemy down in order in their ninth. And it was the Yanks' turn with the top of their batting order coming up. Combs fried out and it was Koenig's turn. Koenig went out in an infield roller. And then you should have heard the crowd as the big fella minced up to the plate, swinging three backs. You, babe, you can do it, Dad, before. Hit it out of the car. 
big fellow took a strike, then two balls, then he fouled off one. Then he took another ball. Here was the big one now. I found myself praying that he'd strike out and save his life. Then the pitch came, a fast one. And I closed my eyes. I heard a ringing crack. And the crowd went crazy. I opened my eyes to see the ball arch high and far into the bleachers. I was waiting for the sound of the shot. Waiting to see my friend fall. My heart was hammering at my ribs as he turned third and started for the plate, taking off his cap to the howling mob. And then I felt a hand on my shoulder and I spun around. It was a man in a gray suit whom I'd seen in the stands throughout the series. Now, he said, we got them, Martin. You, you did, sir? Yes, all of them. Fingers Gerhardt, Joey May, his gravelly voice Stooge, all of them. This was the only game they came to, the big one. They had betting receipts on them, and May had a gun. I think he was getting ready to use it on Ruth. Good Lord. The FBI was after those rats for a long time. But we got them at last, thanks to your descriptions and the big fella's courage. I looked back at the field, and the big fella was just disappearing into the Yankees' dugout, surrounded by his happy, cheering teammates. He was safe, and my eyes got a little misty. The big fella had done the impossible again, and made it stick. And there you have this adventure of Babe Ruth. Interesting and exciting, wasn't it? The Adventures of Babe Ruth is written by Ben Peter Freeman, produced by Woody Close, directed by Ronald Dawson, and presented by the United States Navy. series episode of the highly fanciful series, The Adventures of Babe Ruth, from late in 1949. It's time for a vintage Jack Benny program now, and his usual gangs on hand, including Mr. Benny's real-life wife, Mary Livingston, and, in his servile position as Mr. Benny's manservant, Eddie Rochester Anderson. There are jokes about little people, and I always wonder when the hefty announcer Don Wilson laughs when Mr. Benny makes fat jokes about him. There are other references to the actor Helen Hayes, the old-fashioned men's belted swimsuits, the Santa Anita racetrack, the singer Kenny Baker, the comedian Fred Allen, the witty musician Oscar Levant, the then-recent hit movie Gone with the Wind, the then-current hit movie Boomtown, and the heart of the African-American community in Los Angeles, Central Avenue. And if you really want to know why we're playing this show tonight, listen to the many jokes about the 1940 World Series, which had just been won by my beloved Cincinnati Reds. Most of the jokes, though, as usual, are about Jack Benny's It's All About Me narcissism. From October 13, 1940, and the NBC Red Network, it's The Jell-O Program, starring Jack Benny. The Jell-O program starring Jack Benny with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. The orchestra opens a program with Ferryboat Serenade. <laughs> During 
recent months in county fairs all over the United States, lots of housewives have been winning prizes for the best homemade pies and cakes. And meanwhile, right in their own homes, thousands of housewives have been winning another prize. The blue ribbon of family approval simply by serving those three new dessert favorites, Jell-O puddings. Jell-O puddings are ready-prepared puddings that take hardly any time or effort to make. Merely add milk, cook a few minutes, and then cool. And there's a pudding, ladies and gentlemen, that tastes positively homemade. A rich, luscious pudding with a world of grand pleasure in each creamy spoonful. Jell-O puddings come in three delicious flavors, chocolate, vanilla, and butterscotch. And they're made by the same folks who make world-famous Jell-O. So after this, whenever you buy Jell-O, ask the grocer for several packages of Jell-O puddings, too. When it comes to smooth, creamy flavor and all-around dessert enjoyment, you just can't beat those popular new members of the Jell-O family, Jell-O puddings. Serenade played by the orchestra. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I bring you a man who returned to the air last Sunday, happy as a June bride and just as nervous, Jack Benny. Thank you, thank you. Hello again, this is Jack Benny talking, and Don, I appreciate the fact that you tried to start the program with a laugh and almost succeeded. But I wasn't the uh, least bit nervous last Sunday, not the slightest. Why, Jack, what are you talking about? You were shaking like a leaf. Now, uh, listen, Don, you should be the last one in the world to talk about me being shaky. By all during the program, your chins were doing the lakanga. <laughs> <laughs> and the one in the middle was out of step. <laughs> so there. Well, just the same, I wasn't as jittery as you were. Uh, Don, let me explain the difference between being uh, jittery and high-strung. For instance, you take a good bird dog when he's all keyed up and ready to go. He's not nervous, but he stands there, his whole body quivering, ready to spring into action. And that's the way I was, Don, just like a bird dog. I see. Oh, hello, Mary. Hello, Rover. Take that quail out of your mouth. <laughs> Mary, I was only making a comparison, that's all. I was explaining to Don that I wasn't nervous last week. I was just high-strung like anybody who wants to give a good performance. He's right, Don. Did you ever see a football player before a big game? Or a fighter before he goes into the ring? Why, of course. Did you ever see Helen Hayes before she steps out on the stage? Certainly. Did you ever see Jack in a bathing suit? What's that guy? <laughs> <laughs> We were talking about nervousness. You ring in my bathing suit. Where's the connection? It needs a new belt. <laughs> All right, so it needs a new belt. Now, Mary, if you can quit punching them out for a minute. <laughs> let's be thankful that the first show went over so well. You know, Don, I read some swell reviews on the fantasy I wrote. You know, where the blue fairy woke us all up? Ed Sullivan raved about it. He did? Yes, and that's a critic's opinion. He said that, uh, well, I got the review right here with me. Would you like to hear it? Yes, yeah, stop drooling. <laughs> well, it's nothing to be ashamed of. Uh, listen to this. Uh, the Jell-O program opened its, um, 
While Jack Benny not only appeared in the show, but wrote and produced the fantasy of the Blue Fairy, which, in the opinion of this reviewer, was unquestionably puerile and banal. It was what? Puerile and banal. I'm not making it up, Don. It's right here in black and white. <laughs> but, Jack, puerile means childish, infantile. Well, of course. I wrote it for the kiddies. And banal means what's happened to the kitty shouldn't happen to a dog. <laughs> Oh, no, it doesn't. Yes, Jack. Banal means hackneyed or trite. You know, old-fashioned stuff. Oh. Gee, I can't understand it. Those words look so good. <laughs> oh, well, our listeners liked it. That's all I care about. They certainly did, Jack. In fact, uh, I brought a clipping along I thought you might not have seen, and it's very complimentary. It is? I'll read it to you later. Read it now when I need it. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay, here it is. Our Sunday evenings at home will be much more pleasant now that Jack Benny is back on the air. Well, what paper is that in, Don? The Alcatraz Herald. <laughs> well, Don, that seems to be the consensus of opinion. Mary, did you see any reviews on our first broadcast? No, but I went to Fifi's Beauty Parlor yesterday, and the girls there just raved about it. At Fifi's, huh? They thought everything I said was so cute. Well, sure, you're a good customer at that beauty parlor. They talk about anyone else on the program? Just Phil. He goes there, too. <laughs> I know. And what burns me up, he goes around telling everybody that his hair is naturally curly. It's really as straight as a string. I've seen him in the morning, you know. <laughs> oh, well, here he is now. Hello, handsome. Well, here I am, folks. Lay down them cards and turn up the dials. Boy, what a Smithfield. <laughs> Phil, what makes you think that this program never gets started until you come on? We've been doing all right. Yeah, but you guys don't get them belly laughs, them socceroos, them bafolas. Oh, you and your bafolas. <laughs> By the way, Phil, did you hear anything about our first broadcast? Well, at Fifi's, they said that we I... We heard about that. <laughs> did you see any reviews in the paper? Yeah, saw one right up in the Butcher's Gazette. The Butcher's Gazette, eh? Did they like the show? Yeah, they said it was very cleaver. <laughs> How's that, folks? Hair is clicked again. I'm rolling, <laughs> Phil, what was that supposed to be, a bopola or a socceroo? Well, wait till they stop laughing. I can't tell you. <laughs> oh, that's right. Now, Phil, you might have a few more Butcher Gazette gags up your sleeve, but I think it's about time for a number. How about playing something? Okay, Jackson. Say, Jack, what about that idea of yours? What idea? Oh, yes. Uh, Phil, I've got a great suggestion for something new this season. What is it? Well, inasmuch as we try to inject something different into our show, I thought it would be a novelty if I played violin with your band once in a while. What do you say? Over my beautiful dead body. <laughs> now, wait a minute. This program needs new talent, and I can take the place of one of your violinists. That little guy there on the end. But, Jackson, I got a perfect arrangement of this next number, and one bad note is liable to spoil the whole thing. 
Phil, a bad note in one of your arrangements is like throwing a rose into a barrel of Roquefort. <laughs> So make way in that fiddle section. I'm going to town. Oh, Jack, why don't you let well enough alone? I know what I'm doing, Mary. Come on, Shorty, let me have your violin. Yes, sir. Thanks. It goes under your chin. I know where it goes. <laughs> Wait till I tune up, Phil. That cat ain't dead yet. <laughs> Bill, stop with that stuff, will you? No kidding. I, I wish you wouldn't be so puerile and bano. <laughs> puerile and bano? What's that? A dance team. Puerile and bano, the aristocrats of rhythm. They're a sensation. Well, send them out the bowl. I'll give them a job. Oh, fine. What a mentality. Bill, you know, you ought to take up pressing flowers so you'd buy a dictionary. <laughs> Look who's talking. You didn't know what Puerile and Bano meant yourself. I knew they were words. I didn't think they were people. <laughs> All right, Phil, I'm ready. Let's go. Well, I guess we got to do it, boys. You know how scarce jobs are. <laughs> I broke a string. All right, so we'll wait. Who needs it? Let's go. Can't you hear me calling when the rain at Amapola? Get the Moon Out of Your Eyes, played by Phil Harris and his orchestra, 
with Violin Hot Lick by Sizzle Strings Benny. <laughs> I, uh, I guess that was bad, eh? I'd like to be able to guess like that at Santa Anita. <laughs> Mary, you take my word for it. It was very good. Say, Phil, I think I'll come out to Wilshire Bowl and play with your orchestra tonight. You do, and I'll slap that cover charge on you. <laughs> I'll pick up more than that in quarters. <laughs> hey, speaking of dough, Jackson, that reminds me. What about that $10 you owe me on the World Series? Oh, oh, that's right. I had Detroit. Yes, sir. I forgot all about him. Well, Benny's a good loser. Ten dollars, eh, Phil? Yep. Ten bucks. Okay, I'll go out in the hall and get it for you. Nobody will look. You can roll your sock down right here. <laughs> I don't get smart. I don't carry money in my sock anymore. Oh, that's right. Not since that day at the circus. You're darn right. What happened, Mary? A midget picked his ankle. <laughs> Yes, and if I ever catch that little runt, I'll beat the daylights out of him. Why didn't you, Butch? I chased him clear across the lot, but he ran down a gopher hole. The shrimp. Boy, that's rich. Imagine grabbing dough out of a guy's sock. How much did he get, Jack? About $80,000. It was not. Nowhere near that. Anyway, Phil, I'll go out in the hall and get you... Hey, wait a minute. I got the ten bucks right here. Well, hand it over. I'll hand it over. Don't rush me. Okay. You want it fair and square, and I'm going to give it to you. Yes, sir. What are you waiting for, television? <laughs> now, here you are, Phil. Thanks. Now, don't squander it. Oh, uh, while we're on the subject, Jack, you and I might as well settle up, too. Here's the $5 I lost to you. Now, later, Don. What $5? Never mind. Hey, what's going on here, Jackson? Did you bet on Detroit and Cincinnati both? Well, a guy can get mixed up, can't he? <laughs> well, that beats everything. Now, wait a minute, Mary. I bet $10 on Detroit, and I lost to Phil. And then I accidentally bet $5 on Cincinnati, and I won from Don. So I'm still out five bucks. But what do I care? Ladies and gentlemen, you may not care whether Jack is out five bucks or not, but you will care about those six delicious flavors of America's favorite gelatin dessert. Oh, fine. And whether you bet on Cincinnati or Detroit, you will find that you cannot go wrong when betting on Jell-O. That's Detroit, the whole trite, and nothing but Detroit. <laughs> Isn't that awful? Don, uh, Don, I smell a rat. Did Phil Harris give you that idea? Oh, so you recognize my stuff now, eh? Recognize it? I'll say I did. I didn't. The wind was blowing the other way. <laughs> well, you were very lucky, Mary. You know, there are days, Phil. And... Oh, hello, Dennis. Hello, Mr. Benny. Am I in time for my song? Yes, but it wouldn't hurt to get here earlier. What for? I just stand around like a totem pole. <laughs> What are you complaining about? You sing a song every week, don't you? Kenny Baker gets dialogue. <laughs> Never mind about Kenny Baker. How would you like to be in his shoes and work for a guy like Fred Allen? I think Fred Allen is wonderful. Why, you little fifth columnist. <laughs> Where till I get you outside? Run down a gopher hole, Dennis. Oh, that midget again. <laughs> hey, kid, did you hear about Jackson losing his dough at the circus? No, what happened? He got rolled by a Lillian Fusion. Lillian Fusion? <laughs> Phil, that's Lilliputian. 
Look, Bill, whenever there are two words meaning the same thing, please use the short one. <laughs> anyway, it was my money, so forget about it. Oh, say, Mr. Benny, that reminds me. Here's the two and a half dollars I owe you on the World Series. Later, Dennis. Oh. <laughs> so you bet the same amount on both teams, eh, Sporty? What do you mean, the same amount? Look, Mary, I lost ten dollars to Phil. I got five back from Don and two fifty from Dennis, so I'm still out two fifty. Now, Dennis, let's have your song so that everybody can stop worrying about my financial affairs. Okay. Wait a minute. Come in. Special delivery for Mary Livingston. Here she is. A letter for you, Mary. Thanks. Hey, you're a little old uh, for a messenger boy, aren't you? Well, you twitch on rainy days yourself, Bob. <laughs> I'd like to push him down a gopher hole, too. You know? uh, who's, the, who's the letter from, Mary? It's a note from Mama. Oh, your mother, eh? What's the Oscar Levant of New Jersey got to say? Nothing. She just sent a clipping from the Plainfield paper about our first broadcast. Oh. Here's the headline. Livingston Program Returns to the Air. That's from Plainfield, all right. And Miss Mary Livingston, daughter of that prominent society leader, Mrs. Scarlett Livingston... <laughs> Scarlet. Yeah, she changes her name with every picture. She ought to change it to Grapes of Wrath. That really fits. Oh, Jack, just because Mama hates you, you don't have to be mean about it. Okay, get back to the review of our show. What does it say? <clears throat> Mary Livingston was her usual self. Charming, witty, and fascinating. Well. But the Blue Fairy Fantasy, written by Jack Benny, was nothing short of puerile and banal. <laughs> Let me see that. Well, I'll be darned. There it is. Go ahead. Miss Livingston's father, Mr. Rhett Livingston. <laughs> Holy smoke. Mr. Livingston had an unfortunate accident while listening to the broadcast. He was sitting in the car with the radio tuned on when the owner came along and punched him in the nose. <laughs> Serves him right. When interviewed, Mr. Livingston said, hit. Oh, drunk, too. <laughs> Is that all? Yes, I'm going to paste it in my scrapbook. Well, paste it face down so nobody will read it. Are you ready for your song now, Dennis? Yes, sir. Well, open your mouth and let it go. Say, Mary, when you answer Scarlett, tell her General Sherman sends love. <laughs> Me 
of you sung by Dennis Day. That was very good, Dennis. I really think you have improved a lot this year. Thank you. And say, Mr. Benny, before I forget it, can I mow your lawn Thursday instead of Wednesday this week? (laughs) Why, what's the matter with Wednesday? That's your regular day. Well, Wednesday I have to go down and register for the draft. You know, it's conscription day. Oh, that's right. I'll tell you what, Dennis, I'll pick you up at 3 o'clock... And we'll go down there together. Why, you don't have to go, Jack. Only men up to the age of 36 have to register. Oh, 36, huh? Well, I guess that lets me out. Yep. You barely made the last war. (laughs) Yes, and the civil and the revolutionary. Are you happy? Hey, Jackson, do I have to get in on this, um, on that, um... Registration? Why, certainly, Phil. Every young American has to register. What's it for? Oh, my <laughs> Phil, everybody who registers gets a number, and they send them all to Washington, put them in a big drum, and the lucky winners get a free vacation for one year at the expense of the government. Say, that ain't bad, huh? No. <laughs> and you can take off those patent leather shoes. They're no good for marching. <laughs> Anyway, Phil, you just be there Wednesday. What about Rochester? He'll have to sign up, too, won't he? Yeah, I suppose I'll have to cook dinner myself Wednesday night. And incidentally, fellas, I've been having a little trouble with Rochester lately. What's wrong? Well, they gave him a big celebration the other night and elected him mayor of Central Avenue. When I got home yesterday, I found a sign on my house that said City Hall. (laughs) I took that down in a hurry. Mary, get Rochester on the phone. I want him to pick me up at the El Capitan Theater tonight. Okay. Hope it's not too much trouble for him. <laughs> hey, Jackson, what are you doing over at the El Capitan Theater? Well, Mary and I have been playing there in a show all week. It's a benefit for the British Red Cross. Well, I didn't know anything about it. Well, that's my fault, Phil. I should have taken out an ad in the racing form. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't read a paper. Your so... number's ringing, Jack. Thanks. Give me the phone. Hello? Hello? 
Mr. Bailey's residence is out of the mayor speaking. Rochester. Oh, is that you, Mr. Benny? Yes, it's me. Now, listen, Your Honor. I wonder if I could trouble you to bring the car down to the El Capitan Theater and pick me up about 11.30 tonight. Okay, can I put the top up? Rochester, in this nice autumn weather, it's much better riding with the top down. Yeah, but my silk hat keeps blowing off. <laughs> you don't have to wear a silk topper. Your chauffeur's cap looks very good on you. With a cutaway coat? Oh, boy! <laughs> Now, Rochester, stop being so fancy. Anyhow, what's the good of being mayor of Central Avenue? I get a discount on ribs. <laughs> All right, now, Rochester, the purpose of this call was to have you pick me up in the Maxwell. Now, you'll be down there by 11.30. Okay, so long. So long. Oh, by the way, Mr. Benny, are you aware of the fact the automobile show is in town? Yes, I'm aware. What about it? Well, I was thinking you might want to trade the Maxwell for something less pure island banal. There's nothing wrong with the Maxwell. It's in perfect mechanical condition. Boss, have you ever lifted up that hood when the motor's running? No. Well, don't do it. The fan belt will slap you right in the face. <laughs> that fan belt can be fixed. You gotta catch it first. Now, that's just silly. And the oil flies out like boom down. <laughs> now, Rochester... I don't want to hear any more about the car. You just, you just be at the El Capitan Theater at 11.30. It's up here. I better leave now. <laughs> leave when you want to. Goodbye. So long. Oh, say, boss. Now what? About that little bet we made. Did I have Detroit or Cincinnati? You had Detroit and you owe me $2. I thought so. Never mind. I'll pay you tonight, boss. Okay, goodbye. Always wants to trade in the car. Why, Jack, do you mean to say that you even won $2 from Rochester? Listen, Mary, I'm still loser. I paid $10 to Phil. <laughs> I got five from Don, two and a half from Dennis, and two from Rochester. That's $9.50. I'm still out half a buck. Now, come on, we got to get over to the theater and do that benefit. Okay. So long, fellas. Hey, you can wind up the show yourself, can't yeah, you? Yeah, Jack, we'll see you next time. Come on. See, Mary, when we do the benefit tonight, I want you to give a good show because it's our last performance. I will. Don't worry. Oh, wait a minute. Here's the check room. I want to get my hat. Hello, Tommy. Hello, Mr. Benny. How'd the program go tonight? Oh, pretty good. Can I have my hat? Oh, yes, sir. There you are. Thanks. Oh, by the way, Mr. Benny, here's that 50 cents I owe you. <laughs> oh, that's right. You did bet on Detroit. <laughs> Thanks, kid. Hey, Jack. What? You can close the books now. <laughs> Yeah, come on, let's go. This is the National Broadcasting Company. The Jack Benny Program from right around this time of year in 1940.
It's the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. When a detective gets a strange feeling about a case, it usually pays off. And it certainly does in tonight's Gunsmoke episode. It's called Cyclone. And it comes from March 14, 1953, CBS and Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers. And that's with the U.S. Marshal and the smell of Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad, the story of the violence that moved west with young America, the story of a man who moved with it, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. Ladies and gentlemen, later on tonight's program, you'll hear a special message from the Honorable Edward F. Arne, Governor of the State of Kansas. But now we bring you the first act of Gunsmoke. It's going to be spring before we know it, Mr. Dillon. Uh, this weather won't hold, Chester. We always got a rip snorter after a spell like this. Sure don't look much like it today. <laughs> I even heard a meadowlark this morning. It's early for meadowlarks, isn't it? Yes, sir. That's what I'm telling you. Spring is downright staring us in the face. <laughs> well, the Texas Trail's kind of lively for this time of the afternoon. That'll be livelier if you're right about spring and those trail herds start rolling in. Well, look who's here. And in the daytime, too. Well, howdy, Miss Kitty. Miss Kitty. Isn't it wonderful out? And guess what, Matt? I heard a metal lark this morning. <laughs> you and Chester. Huh? I've been telling him, Miss Kitty, spring is just around the corner. Uh-huh. Kitty? Yeah. How come there's such a crowd in here? Oh, you mean the boys at the bar? Yeah. Well, it's some of the riders from the Cyclone Ranch. They're celebrating. Well, it seems to me they were celebrating Saturday night. They're making kind of a long weekend out of it, aren't they? Well, Jim Paulson said they all went back to the ranch Monday morning, but they got paid off. What? Yeah, the ranch was sold. Sold? You mean old man Bartlett sold out? I hadn't heard anything about it. Well, that's what they said. The new owner had already taken over some stranger... He's the one who paid him off. He brought his own riders with him. Well, what's this stranger's name, Kitty? Well, I don't know, Matt. Ed Revere over there was Bartlett's foreman. Ask him. Yeah, I think I will. Excuse me. Howdy, Marshal. Figure on throwing us into Hooskow? <laughs> no, Ed, I wasn't planning on it. Um, do you happen to know where I can find old man Bartlett? 
Well, afraid you're out of luck. Him and his wife's left the country. At least that's what the fellow that bought the ranch told us. You mean he didn't even stay around to pay you off? Nope. Made up his mind right sudden, I reckon. Guess this fellow Jed Wade made him a mighty good offer. Jed Wade, huh? Yeah. Texas man, more than likely. Ain't from around here, anyways. None of his cowboys, neither. Then you haven't seen old man Bartlett since you left the ranch and came into town Saturday morning, huh? Mary hiding her hair. And he didn't say anything last week about planning to sell? No, he didn't. Sure can't figure old man Bartlett selling out. Said he put half his life into that place and planned on living out the rest of it right there. Listen, Ed, let me ask you something. Oh, yeah. Huh? What do you figure about all this? I don't know, Marshal. Except that it ain't quite right somehow. You don't think there's something crooked about it, do you? Marshal, I don't know what to think. But it just ain't like Bartlett to run out this way. If there's anything I can do... Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, Ed. I don't even have to look it up in the records. There's been no deed of sale on the Cyclone Ranch filed in this office. If there had, I'd know about it. Yeah, well, all right, thanks. That's all I wanted to know. Furthermore, there won't be one filed. Old man Bartlett will live out his life and die right there. You take it from me. Yeah, well, that's what I figured. Mr. Dillon? Oh, come on in, Chester. Sorry to interrupt, Mr. Miffin. Oh, quite all right, sir. I believe our business is completed. Yeah, yeah. What'd you find out, Chester? I checked the depot and the stage lines, Mr. Dillon, and nobody in town hasn't seen either one of them since last week. Mm-hmm. Well, all right, Chester, I guess we better ride out to the ranch. Looks like that new outfit brought some of their own cattle up from Texas, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. And they're wasting no time slapping a brand on them, either. Want to take a look at them? Uh, no. Let's ride on up to the house. I sure can't figure it, Mr. Dillon. Working night and day to build up a good feeder ranch like this and then up and selling out without even thinking it over. Well, I can't figure it either, Chester. Oh, Golly, it sure is a fine ranch. We ain't hiring anybody. Better mount up and ride. Are you Jed Wade? Name's Dallas. I'm the range boss. Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Mr. Wade here? He's out in the barn. What do you want to see him about? Well, suppose I take that up with him, huh? And suppose you turn around and hightail it out of here. Whenever Jed's got business with the law, he'll come to you. Now, look, mister. You had not to talk to visitors that way. Jed don't want strangers hanging around, Miss Wade. And he don't want you talking to strangers either. You better go on back in the house. I guess I know better than you what my own son wants. I'm the only one that understands it. You come right on inside, gentlemen. <laughs> Mr. Dillon, 
Did you say that was the name? Yes, ma'am, that's right. Uh, this is my partner, Chester Proudfoot. How do, ma'am? How do? You fellas wait right there. I'll go get Jed. I think we'll accept the lady's invitation. After you, ma'am. Why, thank you, Mr. Dillon. Surely does perk a body up for the heaven callers in her own house. Especially when you live so long from hand to mouth. I, uh, understand that you're new here, ma'am. Oh, yes. Yes, we were camped for three weeks down along the river. Nearly a caller, just living in a wagon. Oh, do be seated, gentlemen. Thank you. Ain't this a real pretty place now? Why, when Jed and Dallas rode back to camp Sunday morning and said they'd just bought a real bargain, I couldn't dream they meant something like this. A body just can't figure why the owners would ever want to sell it and leave. Uh, would you gentlemen care for some cold buttermilk? Uh, no, thank you, ma'am. Uh, you uh, didn't meet the owners yourself then, huh? No, no. They're already gone when I came over. Oh, you mustn't mind Dallas, Mr. Dillon. He's really a good boy at heart. Him and Jed just picked up a habit of talking mean like that sometimes, and seems like people just don't understand it. Mr. Dillon, Jed ain't got himself into some kind of trouble again, has he? Again, Mrs. Wade? Well, it's like I said. People just don't understand Jed lots of times. It ain't easy to bring up a boy alone, and a body don't always know what's the right way to do and, and what's not. But Jed's real good-hearted down underneath. Once you understand him like I do, why, why the way he even talks to me sometimes would make you Get think it, that he was... Well, son, I... What did I tell you about mouthing off to strangers? But I was... Go on back and get in the kitchen. Well, all right, son. You say so. He's getting old. And it's been a hard trip up here. Dallas told me you was here, Marshal. What can I do for you? What do you want? I'd like to see your bill of sale for this ranch, Mr. Wade. What for? Well, I'll tell you after I see it. Are you trying to accuse me, sir? Not if you got a bill of sale signed by old man Bartlett. Well? All right, Marshal. Take a look. Uh huh. Satisfied now? Where did the Bartlett's go, Mr. Wade? They said they was leaving the country, and that's all I know about it. Yeah, you want to give me back my bill of sale now? Well, I'd like to take it into town and check the signature, if you don't mind. Go ahead. It'll check. And then you've got nothing to worry about, have you? Nary thing, Marshal. I don't know what's on your mind. But you're barking up wrong tree. Mr. Dillon, I'd say that Wade and his partner are ornery enough for anything. Just plumb, cussed, downright, sneak in mean. Uh, maybe so, Chester. 
But you can't jail a man for meanness, not as long as it only comes out in words. I suppose there ought to be a law of some kind. Not take like the way he talks to his mama. I don't see how she can put up with it. She's his mother, Chester. Well, I know that, oh, but there's hello, no... Oh, Matt. Oh, how you, Doc? Uh, just getting ready to close up the office. How about feeding with me? Uh, later, maybe, Doc. Uh, say, uh, Doc, you still got that bill of sale on that horse you bought last fall from old man Bartlett? Oh, uh, sure, I guess so, Matt. Why? Well, I just want to check Bartlett's signature. That's Why, right. what do you got there? I know his signature pretty well. Let me take a look at that now, man. Oh, here. Let's see what you think, huh? Uh, uh, oh, oh, yes. That's old man Bartlett's scroll, all right, of course, Dave. Well, maybe I was wrong. Yes, sir. It looks that way, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, but only about the bill of sale, Chester. We still don't know what happened to the Bartlett's. <laughs> This time it is with great pride that Gunsmoke is able to bring you a specially recorded message by the Honorable Edward F. Arne, Governor of the State of Kansas. Ladies and gentlemen, Governor Arne. It's a real pleasure for me on behalf of Kansans everywhere to congratulate the CBS radio network, the writers, producers, directors, actors, and technicians on the splendid job you are doing with Gunsmoke. Here is real adult Western drama without the usual horse opera cliches portraying an era and community of Kansas that graphically marked the formative years of our great state. Let me point out, however, the Dodge City of today is a far cry from the Dodge City so vividly brought to life in Gunsmoke. From those early pioneer and frontier days, Dodge City has developed into one of the fine cities of our state, industrially, agriculturally, and historically. The folks of Dodge City, and indeed all the people of this great sunflower state, thank you for a good job well done. Thank you, Governor Arne. And now the second act of Gunsmoke. Must be the feel of spring in the air. <laughs> Get the man on the prod. Makes him feel good. Uh, not me, Chester. Yes, sir. I've been noticing that. You haven't said one dozen words in the last hour. It don't do a man any good to stay down in the dumps that way. Oh, drink your beer. Well, now, we just made a mistake. That's all. Got, got the wind up over nothing. Uh, now we know it's old man Bartlett's signature, but... I just can't help feeling that we haven't made a mistake. Well, maybe you ought to make one, Matt. Oh, hi, kiddie. Everybody ought to make a mistake once in a while. Keeps them from getting old. Or else helps them along. What's your trouble, Matt? Oh, uh, feeling that somebody's guilty of 
not being able to prove it. It's that Cyclone Ranch business, Miss Kitty. Now, I know Bartlett didn't sell out. His signature is on that bill of sale, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, but a man can be made to sign something, Chester. Well, why don't you find Mr. Bartlett and ask him? Well, I'd settle for just finding him. I don't think I'd need to do any more asking. Do you mean that the way it sounds, Matt? Yeah. I know I'm jumping at conclusions, but how the way things add up, it's the only answer that makes any sense. Well, I hope you're wrong, Matt. Yeah, so do I, but I don't think I am. Anyway, there's not much you can do about it right now. Why don't you forget it for a while? How about a round of drinks, Matt, in honor of spring? Spring, huh? <laughs> You and Chester. Well, it is, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, even the coyotes feel it. Did you hear him just after dark tonight yapping down along the river bottom? Yeah, I heard him. Uh, Kitty, would you mind if uh, we had that drink later? Well, all right. But where are you going? Well, I, I just thought that uh, Chester and I might take a little ride, that's all. cigarette, Mr. Dillon? Uh, no, you better not. We're too close to the Bartlett place. Miss Kitty sure was right about those coyotes. Every one of them and his brothers out tonight, all yapping their fool heads off. Yeah. You suppose those coyotes really know it's spring coming, Mr. Dillon? It could be. They're sure scattered all over the countryside. Now, there seems to be more of them off there toward the river bottom, though. Yes, sir. Leave you right, Mr. Dillon. Wonder why. I don't know. Might be worthwhile taking a look. Yes, sir. Come. You know, it sounds to me like most of those coyotes are up around those river bluffs there by the bend. Yes, Mr. Dillon, I believe it does at that. Come on, Chester. Let's ride over that way. They're on the other side of that willow thicket. All right. Now let's cut through the thicket here. Mm. They must be awful interested in something, or they sure wouldn't let us get this close. I guess they heard you, Chester. I think most of them are over there at the foot of the bank. Let's take a look. Come on. Chunk of the bank's caved off there, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. Yeah, but the coyotes didn't do it. I've been trying to dig something up, not bury it. I wish there was more moonlight. Yes, sir. Well, if you'd have told me what we were up to, I could have brought a lantern. Well, I didn't know we were going to run into anything, Chester. 
Yes, sir. Uh, see if you can find the stick and let's scratch around in this loose dirt, huh? All right, sir. Anybody tried to tell me this morning that I'd be out here in the middle of the night digging in that dirt like a groundhog. Not even knowing what the same hill I was... What is it, Chester? Did you find something? Yes, sir. I sure have. Here, let me see. Lucky hunch you had, Mr. Dillon. Well, now we know why nobody saw the Bartlett's leave town. They killed him. They killed both of them. Yeah. After they made him sign that bill of sale. Hit the dirt, Chester. They came from the edge of the bank up there. Watch for the next flash. Is that you, Wade? Just to the left of that sumac, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, I saw it. You're under arrest for murder, Wade. Now throw down that gun and come out of there with your hands up. All right, Chester, let's open up on him. Chester, he may be faking it. Yes, sir. Only one thing, Mr. Dillon. It's not Wade. It's Dallas. Then let's go find Wade. like they're all in bed. Uh, it may be easier that way. Yes, sir. I wish there was some way of keeping his mother out of it. I don't see how it can be. Dennis? that you? Did you scare the coyotes away? I heard the shooting and I... It's not Dallas, ma'am. Why, it's the marshal and Mr. Proudfoot at this time of night. This is quite a surprise. Yes, ma'am, I reckon so. Is Jed here? Well, I guess so. Maybe he's out in the barn or somewhere. What's wrong, Mr. Dillon? I sure do hope Jed ain't in some kind of trouble. I just want to talk to him, Miss Wayne. Well, why don't you go on back in the house, huh? And we'll see if we can find him. Well, all right, if you think best. You just go straight on back through the barn. I reckon you'll find him all right. Thank you, ma'am. It's not going to be easy. Yeah, I know. Keep yourself covered. I will. Sounds like you're working back there. Yeah. Bartlett put up enough prairie hay here to last for three years. Right on back, Dennis. Just about got these here running irons finished. 
Dallas won't be needing any running irons, Wade, or anything else. He's dead. We found where you buried the Bartlett's. That's where that shooting was. You and Dallas. You're under arrest for murder, Wade. And if you make a move, you're going to end up the same way Dallas did. How could I do anything, Marshal? I got no gun. I noticed it hanging on the wall there behind you. You leave it there. Uh, sure. Now lay down that hammer and stick out your wrist. Uh, sure. Anything you say? Smash the lantern, Mr. Dillon! Don't watch it, Chester. You'll have his gun now. Get back, Chester. Get back toward the door. I can't see a thing in all this smoke. That haze is dry as powder. This burn's going to go up like a tinderbox. Wade, you haven't got a chance. Now come on out of there while you still can. Why don't you come back here and get me? Crazy fool. Come on out now. The heat's getting awful bad, Mr. Dillon. Yeah, I know. <laughs> back toward the door, Chester. We're going to have to get out of here. Let's go out. Cave it in. Let's Chester. Even, even for a man like Wade, that's not a good way to die, Mr. Dillon. Oh, no way is when you come right down to it, Chester. Dead? That's not dead. He's in there already. He's there all that fire. I'm sorry, ma'am, you but... You've got to go get him out of there. No. I, I'm afraid there's no use, ma'am. I'm going him. I'm no, no, no. It's too late to help me. I always knowed it was going to end like this sometime. I always knowed it. I'm sorry, Miss Wade. Jed done something real bad, didn't he, Mr. Dillon? Him and Dallas. That's why you come back here. Yes, ma'am, I'm afraid so. They killed the people who owned this ranch. They buried them down along the riverbank. Those boys done a lot of bad things, Mr. Dillon. But I don't hold with killing. I'm sorry it had to happen this way, ma'am. Mr. Dillon, I'd like to ask a favor. Oh, why, certainly, ma'am. I come out here in a wagon. It's out back at the house. Now that it's getting light, if you'd hitch up my team to it, I'd like to go back to town with you. Chester. Yes, Mr. Dillon, I'll do it. I'll just take what I brought, Mr. Dillon. Nothing else. Well, just as you like, ma'am. It's all in the trunk. Funny thing. I never did unpack it.
Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by Les Crutchfield, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were V.V. Janis, Harry Bartell, Lawrence Dobkin, Joe Cranston, and Jerry Hausner. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Gunsmoke is heard by our troops overseas through the facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Stars brings you Dana Andrews as a New England fisherman of the old school in a colorful, exciting drama of the Clippership days titled The Token. Hear what happens when a determined young lady steals her sister's betrothal token and then sets out to steal the stalwart young fisherman as well. It's on Theater of Stars tomorrow night on most of these same stations, a feature presentation of CBS Radio at the Stars Address. And you've heard of people stopping the show. Well, there's a show on CBS Radio every Sunday evening that stops the people. It's the Jack Benny Show, of course. And when it comes on the air, practically everybody stops doing practically everything except laughing. So tomorrow night, just stop everything and listen to Jack Benny. He'll be on your favorite CBS Radio station. George Walsh speaking. And remember, Eve Arden, as our Miss Brooks, also teaches you how to laugh Sundays on the CBS Radio Network. Cyclone, an episode of Gunsmoke from the last week of winter in 1953. It came to you from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Errold Bailey co-produces the show, and Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at WAMU.org or on Twitter at WAMU 88.5. And please visit our Facebook page. It's The Big Broadcast. Tonight's Dragnet episode is kind of the opposite of the Gunsmoke story we just played. Instead of, where's the body, the question is, who done it? The case is called The Big Ham, and it comes from June 28, 1953, NBC and Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. A young girl has been shot with a 22 caliber rifle. It was reported a suicide. Your job? Investigate. documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. 
From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Monday, June 8th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Warman. My name's Friday. I was on my way into the office, and it was 8.03 a.m. when I checked into room 42. Homicide. Joe? Yeah. Back here in the skipper's office. Ray Giese wants to talk to All right. Morning, Joe. Hi, Ray. What do you got? Suicide. Anything on it? Oh, uh, here's the report. Team from the business office went out last night. Get on it right away, will you? Right, Ray. What's going on? Yeah. Want to check this stuff before we get started? Might as well give us an idea what we got to do. What's the report say there you got? Let's see. According to this, business office got a call at 2.30 this morning. Landlady out in the Westlake Park District called in and said that this young girl had committed suicide. They get an ID on her? No, they got her listed as Jane Doe, number 17. There's a description here. Better check it with missing persons, huh? Uh-huh. How'd the landlady happen to find the body? Well, according to the report, she heard the water running in the apartment, finally went up to see what it was. She knocked on the door, nobody answered. She opened it and went in, found the body. Well, the girl didn't live in the apartment then? No, place is rented to a Ross Mitchell. Anything on him? No, because he wasn't home. He was checked through R&I, no make on him. How about prints on the victim? No go. Checked him out. Nothing on her here. We can send them on to Washington. Yeah. And they found a suicide note. It's a copy of it here. What's it say? Ross, I've tried to make you understand. Nothing seems to do any good. I've told you that I won't stand in the way of your career, but you don't want to try to make a go of it. I know this doesn't solve anything. It's the only way I can think of. Any signature? No. The report says that the original copy's over at the crime lab for processing. Yeah. Well, I guess we better start with the landlady, huh? It's the best lead we got. Glendo and Bates are out there now. Place was staked right away. Friday, you want to take two? Right, thanks, Ray. It's Friday time. Yeah. Uh-huh. No, we just got it. Is that right? Okay, Max. No, have him wait there, will you? No, we'll be right over. Right, thank you. Well, it's a little break. Max over at the coroner's office says they know who the girl is. Yeah. Her father just identified the body. a.m. We left the city hall and we went over to the Hall of Justice. We met the victim's father, a Mr. Robert Andrews Paul. He told us that there could be no mistake. The body was that of his daughter, Gloria Z. Paul. The attendant had given him some smelling salts, and after introducing us, he'd left to close off the viewing room. I don't understand why she'd do it. None of it makes sense. Well, when did you see your daughter last, Mr. Paul? Saturday afternoon. That was the last time. I never saw her again. She was gone Saturday night and all day yesterday, is that it? Yeah. You hear from her at all? No. Weren't you worried about her at all? No, sometimes she doesn't come home, stays with a girlfriend, but when I didn't hear from her last night, I got worried, started calling around. She say where she was going when she left? Told me she was going over to see Peggy. Said the two of them were going to a show and that she'd be home for dinner, sure. Well, who is this Peggy? Peggy Rockwell, a friend of Gloria's. Uh-huh. Have you talked to her? What? I say, have you talked to this Peggy since your daughter disappeared? Yes, I called her last night. I talked to her then. I was most out of my mind. I didn't know what to do. I talked to her last night. She didn't know. Did your daughter know anybody named Ross Mitchell? Ross Mitchell? No, I don't think I've ever heard the name. Why do you ask that? I well, just wondered. You know something about this you're not telling me, is that it? No, sir, we don't. Well, it must be something like that. You don't just come up with a name like that out of thin air. you got to have a reason. Now, look, I'm a father. i got a right to know. All night sitting there waiting for the phone to ring, calling her friends, thinking she's been in an accident, imagining all kinds of things. If you know something, you should tell me. I've got to know. How am I going to tell her mother? Poor woman's almost dead with worry. She doesn't know about this. All she knows is that the baby's gone, that's all. The baby's gone. 
Glory is dead. I don't know what to do. All right, Mr. Paul, try to take it easy. I'm sorry if you got a cigarette. Yes, sir. Here. Here, I'll give you a light. Sorry about that. It's all right, sir. We understand. Then do you think you can give us an address where we can talk to this Peggy Rockwell? Yeah, she works at a restaurant over on 7th. I've got a home address, too, if you want it. Yes, sir. We hope you'll understand this, Mr. Paul. We don't mean any offense here. What's that? Did your daughter have any steady boyfriends that you know about? No, I don't think so. No one that she went with steady. No one man she liked more than the others? I think there was. I, I don't know who... Her mother asked her about it a couple of times, wanted to know who the fellow was, but Gloria would never say. Just said that it wasn't serious, it didn't matter. I'd seem to get along with this man, would you know? All right, I guess. I told you, I never saw him. I didn't know who he was. But whenever Gloria had a date with him, she acted like it was something special. Did your daughter have a job? Not regular. She used to model once in a while, and then maybe she'd pick up a day's work in pictures, not much. Mm -hmm. Can you think of any reason why she'd want to take her own life? No. She seemed pretty happy, never gave any indication there was anything wrong. Has she been ill lately under a doctor's care? No, not that I know about. Well, Mr. Paul, is it possible she might have been seeing a doctor and you wouldn't know about it? No, her mother would have known. She'd have told me. Now, I'm pretty sure she was feeling all right. Anything about her job that bothered her? What do you mean? Well, was she happy with what she was doing, the kind of work she was doing? Oh, yeah. Gloria didn't want a career. She was looking for a husband, one to settle down and raise a family. Mm -hmm. Well, can you think of anything at all that might make her want to take her own life, as I asked you before? I can't understand it. None of it makes any sense to me. Where she was found, she didn't know anybody in that part of town. I don't know what she'd be doing over there. Did she drink? I don't think I understand. Well, did she drink much, sir? Bars, cocktail lounges? No, she didn't. Now, Gloria was a good girl. She didn't drink or smoke. She was a good girl, and I don't understand all this. First this thing with Ross, and now you want to know if she drinks. I don't know what you're trying to get at, but I don't like it. You're trying to make Gloria something that she isn't. She's a good girl, always has been. Just a home and family, that's all she wanted, nothing more. I don't know why you're asking me all these questions. I'm a father, you're the police, it's up to you to find the reason. That's your job, not to come around and say things about my girl. I'm sorry, we're not saying anything, Mr. Paul. You are too, you're trying to make me believe that Gloria wasn't a nice girl. Now, I know different. I raised her since she was a baby, gave her all the care I could. I don't know why she'd do a thing like this. You don't? No. Why ask me these questions? Well, sir, you said it yourself. Huh? You're her father. We continued to talk to the father of the victim. From him, we got a list of the girl's friends, the address, and the names of the people that she worked for. While we were talking to him, he was unable to give us any idea as to why his daughter, Gloria Paul, might want to take her own life. He insisted that he didn't know anybody or any one of his daughter's acquaintances named Ross Mitchell. A telephone call was put through to his wife, but she was unable to tell us who the man was. 8.20 a.m., Mr. Paul recovered from the initial shock and he went home. 8.39 a.m., we drove over to the rooming house where Gloria Paul had been found. On the way, we stopped to call the crime lab to see if they'd been able to come up with anything in the dead girl's effects to help us. Lieutenant Lee Jones at the lab told us that they hadn't finished their investigation yet. 8.50 a.m., we arrived at the house and talked with the landlady, Selma Keene. It's terrible. Poor little thing. You haven't seen Ross Mitchell yet, has No, he hasn't come in. I told the officers last night that I didn't expect him until noon today. Have you seen the girl before? Once in a while. She'd come in with Ross, wait for him, and then they'd go right out. Did you see her last night, sir? I told the officers that were here last night that I didn't. Uh, didn't you talk to them at all? Well, yes, ma'am. We have the report they filed, Mrs. Keene, but we'd like to get some additional facts from you. 
it seems like a waste of time, but I suppose you have to. Yes, ma'am. Do you have any idea when she might have come in? No, not the slightest. When was the last time you saw Mitchell? Saturday around noon. He came in and told me that he'd be out of town over the weekend. Said for me to keep an eye on the place. Yes, ma'am. Did he tell you where he was going? He said he was going to visit an assistant director friend of his over in La Cunada. Did you say what the friend's name was? No, they're working on a picture together. Ross just met him the other day. Asked him out for the weekend. Ross was very good at making friends. Mm -hmm. Do you know where he's working? No. Ross just said it was a sea adventure. Doing it in full color. 3D, too. I guess it's going to be quite a spectacle. I didn't have all the gimmicks in my day. Ma'am? Didn't have 3D or the other things. In my day, we acted. We knew how to act. From the heart. These youngsters are good flack. Can make a star out of anybody. Oh, things have changed. And here, this one. That's me with the pith helmet. This was made over on Catalina Island. We were shooting a jungle picture. We acted. No doubles for us. Real actors. Mm. When was this, ma'am? A few years ago. Now, why are you asking all these questions about Ross? Well, the note the girl left was addressed to him. <laughs> that doesn't mean anything. Just some lovesick girl. Doesn't mean Ross had anything to do with it. How'd you happen to find the body? I went to bed about 10.30. They were running one of my old movies on TV, and I stayed up to see it. You happened to catch it? The thing called The Floods Will Come. I made it over at Catalina. It starred Nick Benton, real movie idol. Here's one of the stills from the picture. Yes, ma'am. Here's the whole company. That's me. And that, that's Nick with the puttees. He'd put on a little weight. I remember he had to do road work while we were there to trim down. Held the company up for a week. The grand picture. They didn't do it right on television, though. Looked a little corny. I guess the way they ran it through the machines. You know, we all looked uh, pasty. Even Nick. Yes, ma'am. Would you go on, please? Uh, well, after I saw the rest of the picture, I went out to the kitchen, got a bowl of shredded wheat to eat in bed, came back to the bedroom, and I heard this noise. What noise was that, ma'am? Like somebody was running water in one of the taps. Went on and on. Pretty soon it started to bother me. I couldn't understand it. Uh-huh. Finally, I went up to see who it was. Noise came from Ross's apartment. Mm -hmm. I knocked, but there wasn't any answer, so I unlocked the door and went in. I thought something was wrong. And that's when I saw her. I see. She was lying on bed. Right away, I called the police. Now, before you went up, did you hear any other noises? Any sound of a struggle, anything like that, maybe? No, just the water running. Well, how about the shot, ma'am? You hear that? No, no, I didn't. A lot of shooting in the picture I was watching. Did you touch anything in the room? No, I turned the lights, but that's all. Room was dark when I went in. Just turned on the lights, and then I called you. According to our report, there wasn't any purse found with the body. Did you see one when you went in there? I didn't. But if I had, you'd gotten it. What are you trying to say? That I stole her purse? Is that what you're trying no, to say? No, ma'am, that's not what we're trying to you say. Better not. I've got a reputation in this town. I know a lot of big people. I'm not going to have you come in here and call me a thief. Well, we didn't mean to offend you, ma'am. Uh-huh. Who has a key to Mitchell's place besides him, ma'am? No one. He's got the only one. I don't like a lot of keys to the rooms out. I tell all the tenants that. Have you got any idea how the girl might have gotten into the room? No. Do you know who the gun belonged to? Yes, it was Ross's. You're pretty sure about that, are you? Yes, I saw it when he moved in. Commented on it then. He said that he'd had it since he was a kid. Kept it out of sentiment. Mm-hmm. What's this all about, anyway? You seem to think that there's something wrong, is that it? No, ma'am. It's just that in things like this, we have to make a complete investigation. You can understand. Oh, well, I want to do all I can to help you, but I do have an appointment. If there's nothing more you want, I'd like to be going. That's all right, Miss Keene. 
If we want to talk to you, we'll be able to reach you here? Yes, right here. We'll give you a call to tell you about the inquest. Am I going to have to be there? Yes, ma'am. You and Mitchell. Why him? Well, it was his apartment, ma'am. But he didn't have anything to do with well, it. Well, maybe so, ma'am, but he'll still have to be there. It's not fair. A thing like this can ruin him. By the time the papers get through with it, he'll be finished. It can ruin his career. He doesn't know anything about it. He won't be able to tell you anything. Well, you're wrong there, ma'am. Huh? He's got a lot to explain. We went upstairs and met the officer staked out in the room and looked at the apartment where the girl had been found. 9.20 a.m. We gave our card to Thelma Keene and asked her to call us if she thought of anything else. We also asked her to notify us immediately in the event she heard from Mitchell. The stakeout on the room continued. 9.52 a.m. We drove over to the coffee shop on West 7th Street to talk to the girl's friend, Peggy Rockwell. We found her in the back of the place typing out the day's menus. What about Gloria? Something wrong? When was the last time you saw her, miss? Well, let's see. Saturday night, she stayed at my house. Left about noon on Sunday. I had the day off. Figured that maybe we'd do something, but Gloria said she had something to do. Last I saw her was on Sunday morning. You know a man named Ross Mitchell? That bum. Why do you say that, Miss Rockwell? Because he is. Real no good. You pretty friendly with Miss Paul? Gloria thought so. Turned out he was just using her. Well, how do you mean? Thought at first she could get him some jobs. Turned out when he could do better, he dropped her. They were going to get married, and then he thought he could do better, so he dropped her. Mm Mm-hmm. Say, do you mind if I go ahead with these menus? The boss will be sore if I don't get through with them. No, you go right ahead, miss. We can talk while I'm doing it. Yes, ma'am. I took a course once, touch typing. Didn't think I'd ever use it. Boy, was I fooled. You go right ahead, miss. Well, this Ross really gave her the rush. Had her take him around, introduce him to her friends. She got him a couple of jobs. She's the one who introduced him to Mike. Mike? Yeah, Mike Cowell. That's Ross's agent. Peggy set it up. She's done just about everything for him. Then the bum acts like this. What do you mean, miss? Treated her so bad. Say, how do you spell croquettes? Well, I I think it's C-R-O-Q-U-E-T-T-E-S. O Q E T T E S. Turkey. They had roast turkey last night. I don't understand how people can eat them, but we sure sell a lot of them. Did Miss Paul say she was going to see Ross over the weekend? Yeah. She said she had an appointment with him Sunday. Said she'd called him and set it up. You know what time? No, just said she wasn't going on like this. Had to be straightened out. Mm -hmm. I don't blame her. She's told her friends they were going to get married, and at the last minute, Ross would back out. Her family know about Ross? No. Father didn't mind her doing a little work and show business, but he didn't want her to marry anyone in it. She thought that if they just got married, then the family would understand. Joe, yeah. I'll call the crime lab, see if they've finished. Yeah, fine, thanks. How did Miss Paul and Mitchell seem to get along, ma'am? What do you mean? Well, do they have any arguments or disagreements, would mm, you know? Not often. Most of the trouble they had was about getting married. Ross kept saying that it wouldn't do him any good to be married now. He thought that it might hurt his career. That's all he thought about. Were you ever present at any of these arguments? Once. We'd gone out on a double date, went to a place down at the beach, had dinner, and then stopped on the way back for a couple of drinks. Uh-huh. Ross got pretty drunk, got into a big thing about his career. Yeah. He went on and on about how hard he'd work, how much the theater meant to him, all that kind of stuff. I see. Finally, he said right out, they'd kill anyone who tried to stop him just like that. He'd kill anyone who tried to stop him. Joe, yeah. See you, man. Would you excuse me, please? Sure. Uh, just a minute. Um, is there one L or two L's in broccoli? Just one, ma'am. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Just talk to Lee Jones. Yeah, did he finish up? Yeah, something's wrong. What's that? 
He thinks the girl was murdered. You are listening to Dragnet, the authentic story of your police force in action. a.m. We drove to the crime lab and talked with Sergeant Jay Allen. He told us that when they checked for powder burns on the body, they hadn't found any. They measured the reach of the dead girl and found that it would have been almost impossible for her to have pulled the trigger on the rifle, leaving the fingerprints they found on the gun. Blotter test failed to show any traces of nitrate powder on her hands. They checked the handwriting on the suicide note found in the room against samples of Gloria Paul's writing and found that they didn't match. From their findings, they said that it was their opinion that the girl had not killed herself, that she'd been murdered. We went back to the city hall and got out a local and an APB on Ross Mitchell. We called the landlady of his rooming house. She hadn't heard from him. 12.30 p.m., we went back to the rooming house and relieved the stakeout. We asked the landlady not to say anything to Mitchell about our being there. 12.45 p.m., still no sign of the suspect. 1 o'clock, 1.30 Who are you? What are you doing in my place? Come on in. Who are you? Police officers. Come on in. Close that door. Put that suitcase down. What's this all about, anyway? What have you guys been doing here? The place is You, Ross Mitchell? Yeah, why? You know a girl named Gloria Paul? What's she got to do with it? You know her? Yeah, I know her. When's the last time you saw her? Say, what's this all about? What's all these questions? When was the last time you saw Gloria Paul? Friday night, I guess. Don't you know for sure? All right, Friday night. You haven't seen her since? I told you, the last time was Friday night. You didn't see her Sunday? No. Where were you Saturday and Sunday? Out of town. Where? La Cunada. Can you prove you were there? Why? Can you prove you were there? I don't like all this. You guys coming in here asking a lot of questions. What are you trying to prove? Who are you staying with? A friend of mine. What's his name? I'm not going to have him dragged into this. You haven't got any choice. That's what you say. You haven't told me what this is all about. I'm not telling you anything. Will you tell me? You look, Mitchell, understand this. We're not here to pass the time of day. You better come up with some answers quick. Now, who are you with? Friend of mine, guy named Sid Austin. What's his phone number? You gonna call him? We gotta check your alibi. Now, what's his number? Won't do any good to call him. Thought you said you were there. I was. Then we gotta call him. Well, he won't be able to tell you anything. He wasn't there. He just let me use his place. There wasn't anybody there. Who's got a key to this place besides you? You mean here? That's right. Nobody. You got the only key, huh? That's right. The landlady's got one, just the two of them. You got any idea how somebody else could get in here? No. Why? How well do you know Gloria Paul? What's she got to do with it? How well do you know her? We used to go together. Anything serious between you? She thought we might get married. How'd you feel about it? I don't think that's any of your business. Maybe it is. How'd you feel about it? I liked her. She was a nice kid. Nothing more. No. Now you look. I think it's about time you told me what this is all about. Something to do with glory, is that it? That's right. What? She's dead. Huh. Oh. Can I please have a cigarette? Yeah. Here. Here's a match. Thanks. How'd it happen? Thought maybe you could tell us. Why'd you figure that? Where'd you see her last? Up here. This room? Yeah. When was that? I told you, Friday night. Do you have any trouble with her? No. No argument? I told you no. Well, how'd it happen? Can't you tell me? You want a twenty-two rifle? Yeah. You got bullets for it? Yeah, why? Where do you keep it? Closet over there. You keep it loaded? No, the bullets are on the shelf in the closet. All right, come on, Ross. We better go downtown. What for? I want to talk to you. What for? You got to tell me before I have to go. You got to tell me what you're holding me for. Suspicion of murder. Now, come on. taking him? Downtown. Why? We want to talk to him. You didn't have anything to do with it, did you, Ross? 
I don't even know what this is all about. All I know is that Gloria's dead. She killed herself in your room. What? In your room, Ross. It was suicide. Well, they're arresting me for murder. Oh, you can't do that. Ross didn't have anything to do with it. It was suicide. That's what you said. All right, come on, Mitchell. Well, you can't do that. It was suicide. You want to take him out of the car, Frank? Yeah. You can see that you're making a mistake. He didn't have anything to do with it. He's going to have enough trouble with that girl killing herself in his apartment. You can't arrest him for murder. It was suicide. What are you trying to tell us, lady? What? Something you want to say here? No, you're making things up. All right, let's go. Yes. Yes, go ahead, take him, go ahead. He wants to be a star, let him. Go ahead and take him and serve him right. The way he treats people. I tried to help him. God knows I tried. Got him to meet a lot of important people, a lot of contacts. You think he was interested? You bet he was. How's he show it? I'll tell you how. He thanks me for all I've done for him by running around. Chasing after that young nobody, that Gloria. I tried to reason with her, tried to talk some sense into her. Told her that she couldn't do anything for him. Told her that I could make him a star, bigger than anybody. She said she loved him. She doesn't know how to love. You want to go ahead? Came over here all the time, begging Ross to marry her. Told her to get out of his life and stay out to leave him alone. He didn't need her. When was all this? Sunday evening. She came here all dressed up. Oh, when they're young, they know everything. I'm one of the biggest stars this town ever had. She's a nobody. I know what's good for that boy. Didn't you tell us you didn't see the girl Sunday? Isn't that right? That's what I said. Did you see her Sunday? Yes, I did. She wanted me to let her into Ross's apartment. I told her he wasn't there. She said it didn't make any difference. She'd wait for him. Yeah. I told her to leave him alone. She didn't understand him. Didn't know how to take care of him. I know the right people. He could have written his own ticket in this town. He could have been big. You don't want him. I killed her. All right. Do you want to get a coat, ma'am? Yes. Doesn't make any difference. I did it to help him. I thought you'd think it was suicide. I didn't think you'd figure anything else. You wrote the note, did you? I did. That's what you've got to understand. For him, that was all that counted. He'd married her and he'd been through. I had to stop it. I didn't want to kill her. But you can see I couldn't let him marry her. Ross is a fine actor. Real talent. Doesn't come along often. All right, lady. Let's go. He'll understand, won't he? He'll know why I did it. He'll understand. I wouldn't know, ma'am. Oh? We'll let you ask him. The story you have just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On October 14th, trial was held in Department 89, Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles. In a moment, the results of that trial. Thelma Alice Keene was tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. She was sentenced to life imprisonment in the California Institute for Women, Corona, California.
have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Frazier. Heard tonight were Ben Alexander, Virginia Gregg, Vic Perrin. Script by John Robinson, Ben Alexander. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. By special request, Dragnet is being sent to our servicemen and women all over the world. Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, Dragnet leaves radio for the rest of the summer. We'll be back early in September. Watch then for our return. Check the radio listings of your newspaper for the day and time. Please note, however, that if Dragnet is seen on television in your community, it will continue throughout the summer. Dragnet, the big ham from the early summer of 1953. I'm Murray Horwitz, and this is the big broadcast from WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. If you were with us last week, you know that the distinguished actress Dame Angela Lansbury turned 94 this past Wednesday. Jill Arald Bailey and I talked it over, and we decided that paying tribute to her on only one of our shows wasn't enough. So we have a couple more examples of her radio versatility for you tonight. The first one comes from the Saturday afternoon series Stars Over Hollywood. It's a terrific little drama. It's called The Experiment, and one of Dame Angela's co-stars is credited as Bill Conrad. Just a month before this broadcast, he'd appeared in his first Gunsmoke episode, billed as William Conrad, in the role of Matt Dillon. From May 24, 1952, and CBS, here is Angela Lansbury in The Experiment from Stars Over Hollywood. This is Angela Lansbury with a welcome to Stars Over Hollywood, presented by Carnation Evaporated Milk. Your host for Carnation, Art Ballinger. Welcome to Hollywood, home and workshop of the world's most glamorous people. Each week, Stars Over Hollywood presents in person the world's greatest stars. Actors you've seen in motion pictures and heard on radio. Such famous names as Joan Crawford, Cornell Wilde, Anita Louise. Today, Carnation, the world's favorite brand of evaporated milk, brings you transcribed a star who is currently appearing in the King Brothers Technicolor production, Mutiny. Angela Lansbury. The story, the experiment. Ladies, when you buy milk, remember that no other kind of milk has as many uses as carnation. Carnation for cooking. Carnation for coffee. Carnation for baby feeding. Yes, carnation is truly an all-purpose milk. You can use it just like cream, because undiluted carnation, as it pours from the can, has the consistency of good, rich cream. And there's cream in every drop. And when you need milk, double-rich carnation mixed with an equal amount of water gives you milk that's richer than your state standard for bottled milk. Yet amazingly enough, carnation costs a lot less than bottled milk and less than half as much as cream. So it's a fact. No other kind of milk has as many uses as carnation. No other kind of milk is so economical. 
Why not stock up on Carnation evaporated milk the next time you shop? And now, Act One of the Experiment. A cold rain falls on the great gray prison. Armed guards silently shepherd a taut-faced young man from his cell toward the warden's office. Meantime, in that office, the warden is differing sharply with the attractive woman who is his visitor. And I repeat, Dr. Galloway, that you're risking your life in this experiment. You have the governor's authorization, warden. Yes, I know, I know. And if the circumstances were a little different... Meaning you expected a man? When I was told that Dr. Galloway would arrive this morning to choose a prisoner for an important medical experiment, why, naturally, I... I'm sorry to have disappointed you. Oh, it's not that. I'm considering the danger to which you're exposing yourself. I assure you, warden, that I'm perfectly capable of taking care of myself. In ordinary things, yes. But this prisoner you want for your experiment is a murderer, convicted of cold-blooded first-degree murder. His sentence is 99 years. Lots of people think he should have gotten the chair. Terry Wisdom. I remember the case vaguely. Yeah, the guards are bringing him here now. We'll have police protection at the laboratory during the experiment. If you'd work here where we could give you real protection... Oh, it's impossible. I must have access to my own laboratory, my own apparatus. I'm, I'm too close now to let anything stop me. If there were another prisoner who'd qualify... You only had two volunteers, and the other man was much too old. Your instructions were so explicit. The subject's chances of pulling through are so slim. Actually, I've every confidence in my treatment. But I wanted the risk clearly understood. In Risden's case, serving a 99-year sentence, he's got little to lose. Here they are. Come in. They said you were ready to see me. That's right, Brisbane. Come in. All right, Sullivan. I'll take over now. I said this Dr. Galloway was here. I am. You must be Terry Ritchie. You're the doctor that's making this experiment? Yes. <laughs> they didn't tell me it was a woman. I hope that doesn't prejudice you against the experiment. Prejudice me? No, why should it? Makes no difference to me who's in charge. Warden, I wonder if I might talk to Mr. Wisdom alone for a few minutes. Well, all right. I'll be just outside. You won't mind answering a few questions, will you? Even if I do mind, what difference does that make? I'm your property from now on, Doctor. Would you mind telling me why you volunteer? I can't see that it makes any difference. You knew this was a dangerous experiment, that you might not live through it. And still... You can be quite a gambler, Doctor, when you've nothing to lose. You've been here a long time. A little over a year. Just 98 to go. If we're successful, Mr. Rizzin, this can mean a great deal to a great many people. That's great. Have you ever known anyone who suffered from a rare blood disease? No, I can't say that I have. I guess it must be pretty bad. It is. I've worked a long time on this experiment. It means a great deal to me. When will we be leaving? In a few minutes. Mr. Risden, the warden seems to feel that I should be apprehensive about you. He thinks you're a dangerous man. The warden should know. Personally, I have every confidence in you, Mr. Risden. I'm glad you do, Doctor. I'm glad you do. the laboratory, Mr. Risden. Your room is here. Sorry about the bars on the window. Oh, don't they? I'd miss them if they weren't there. We'll, we'll want to start early in the morning. I have to break down the blood cells before I can make my test. Doctor, just one thing. 
Yeah. Thanks. Thanks? For treating me like a human being. It hasn't happened for almost two years. In the car coming here, I almost forgot that I... Well, anyhow, you're all right. In the laboratory here, we're two people doing a very big job, Miss Lucy. That's all. What you've done before or haven't done in the past doesn't matter. Succeeding is all that matters. You won't believe me, but I've got to say this. I didn't commit that murder they sentenced me for. It sounds ridiculous to say it, but I was framed. You shouldn't have assumed that I wouldn't believe you. I don't know exactly why, but I just had to tell you that. I'm glad. Do you do you know who did kill the man? I know. A very smart gentleman named Piper. Tony Piper. He owns a nightclub uptown. He got rid of Weeks and me at the same time. Weeks was the murdered man? Yes, that's right. There was someone who could have... Well, that doesn't matter anymore. Well, I'm glad you told me. I would have asked, but I wasn't sure. I saw the lights in here. Oh, Susan, come on in. Mr. Ridson, this is Susan Brown, my new laboratory assistant. Susan Brown? I'm glad to know you. How do you do, Mr. Ridson? Tomorrow we start on the big job. I'll see both of you then. Coming, Susan? Well, I, uh, I just want to check if one told to Dr. Arlott. All right. See you in the morning. Terry. Oh, Terry. What are you doing here? What did she mean? You were her assistant. Well, I read you volunteered that they were bringing you here. I've been working as a nurse and... Oh, have you seen like a chance to help so Aren't you a little late with your help, Sue? Terry, I was wrong. I know it now. Please don't look at me like that. The doctor doesn't know that... that you're my sister? No. Terry, why wouldn't you see me at the prison? What does it matter now? It's all finished. It's not. Terry, I've divorced Tony. I want to help you. Please. What can you do that place is surrounded by cops? Some way I'll manage it. Some way I'll get you out of here, Terry. I promise. <laughs> Thanks for the free criticism. The paying customers like it. Close the door. Yeah. You know, never was a drawing tad like Sue. Too bad you and her wife. Died. I was sick of it. After the trial, she got on my nerves. Oh, well, speaking of the trial, what did they read in the papers that they let Terry Risen out of prison? But what are you talking about? <laughs> well, now don't tell me Tony Piper is still jumpy about the frame he built for his brother-in-law. You got a great sense of humor, Pete. Maybe I should use you in my floor show. Well, uh, Risden volunteered for some sort of medical experiment they're working on at the Patterson Clinic. He's here in town, then, huh? A very risky experiment, seems like. They asked for volunteers at the prison, and Risden spoke out. Risky, you say? Yeah. The guinea pig may not pull through. Maybe this doctor will do what the state wouldn't finish Risden off for me. Yeah, it sure would be great. Now, not that you got anything to worry about, even as it is. As long as Risden's alive, Pete, there's always a chance, and I don't like chances. I prefer sure things. I like the way you handle those instruments, Doctor. Give a man the impression that you really know what you're doing. Well, I have your confidence at least, Terry. Now, if I can just do as good a job on the medical world... I guess some of the boys don't think you're on the right track. Huh? A great many don't. It's not a simple problem. The fact that I'm a woman... Terry, the breakdown is complete in your blood cells now. 
So all you have to do now is cure me. I think you can do it. Thanks. What did you do before? Me? I was a reporter. I went in for exposés. And that's how you happened to get into trouble? Mm, that's right. My... Someone I knew worked for Piper. I was sure he was using that nightclub as sort of a front. Just when I was beginning to get some evidence, I found myself standing over Ed Week's body with a gun in my hand. Unfortunately, Ed and I had had a few words not long before. So it was the perfect frame. And you think that Piper killed Weeks? Think, I know he did. All the evidence against me was circumstantial, was planted. So Piper got rid of Weeks and me. Have you appealed? I appealed. My appeal was denied. Margaret, you believe me, don't you? You really believe me? Yes. Yes, I do. I have no right to tell you this. We're going to keep the past out of the laboratory, weren't we? Sometimes it's not as easy to control an experiment as we'd like it to be. If you can believe me, Margaret, there's hope. Of course there's hope. Why, after you're well again... Hey, if I'm well again. I believe in you. Can't you return the compliment? If you knew how much I've come to believe in you, to count on you. Together, Terry, we can clear you. I know we can. Together. But now we've got to make you well again. That's first. Giving you back your health. I have to go back to the hospital this afternoon, Susan. You're to keep hourly records of Mr. Risen's pulse, temperature, and blood pressure. Yes, Dr. Gilman. How are we doing, Doctor? It, it is slower than I thought. Too early, really, to tell, I guess. I don't feel so good. You just rest. Call me at the hospital if there's any marked change. Yes, Doctor. Remember, Susan, hourly records. That data will be very important later. I'll remember, Doctor. Terry. She might hear you. Terry, I think I can get you out of here. After six o'clock, there are only two policemen, O'Brien in back and Schwartz in front. So? Well, I played up to O'Brien. I take him hot coffee every night. Now, when the time comes, I'll put something in his coffee. No, it wouldn't work, Sue. Just forget it. Can't forget it. Terry, I know what I did to you. I, I should have testified at the trial, but Tony wouldn't let me. I could have saved you. Please forgive me, Tony. Now, don't cry, Sue. You were only a scared kid. I'll smuggle you a gun, too. We ought to try it with Saturday at the latest. O'Brien may be shifted next week. See, this is Tuesday. Sue, I may not be able to go. The experiment shouldn't work. I'm so weak now. Terry, if we don't try it Saturday, there may not be another chance. Dr. Galloway said she'd try to help me. She says that now, but what could she do? You've got to take this chance when it comes, Terry. Saturday night. Saturday night. <laughs> And so the curtain falls on the first act of today's radio drama, The Experiment, starring Angela Lansbury and brought to you by Carnation Evaporated Milk. Before we return to the second act, here's Carnation's home service director, Mary Blake, to tell you how to make Memorial Day a day more to be remembered than ever. Mary? Thank you, Art. Mine is a picnic suggestion, naturally, because Memorial Day is a great day for picnics, as everybody knows. And a great dish for picnics? is fried chicken. Mm, make mine crispy and tender, Mary. That's something we leave to carnation, Art. 
Because the best way to get a crisp outside crust on fried chicken and at the same time keep the inside moist and tender is to prepare it with carnation evaporated milk. Sounds simple. All you do is to dip the chicken in one half cup undiluted carnation, then in a half cup seasoned cornmeal. One half cup carnation and one half cup cornmeal. And fry in the usual way, I That's suppose. That's right, Art. And it's the quickest way I know to have delicious fried chicken. Delicious, friends, because there's no other kind of milk quite like carnation evaporated milk. Carnation is more than double rich, so it adds richness to any recipe. And carnation is heat refined, which means smoother blending with other ingredients. And there's no better proof of carnation superiority in cooking than in fried chicken made the carnation way. I hope you'll try it for your Memorial Day picnic. Yes, friends, by all means, try carnation in your fried chicken batter, as Mary Blake suggests. The delicious results will convince you that carnation performs cooking miracles not possible with any other kind of milk. Get in the habit of cooking regularly with carnation, the milk from contented cows. Turn now to the second act of The Experiment, starring Angela Lansbury in the role of Margaret Galloway. How does it look, Margaret? I think that we're beginning to make a little progress. I should know by late Thursday night or Friday morning. Well, I'll know by Saturday. One way or the other. Won't we? We'll know by then. Terry, if, if we should succeed, I may have another favor to ask you. Oh? At the hospital, there's a child, a little girl. She isn't expected to live. All the specialists have been consulted, and they've given up. It's the same blood disease. If you react favorably, and if we could then give her a transfusion, she might have a chance. Just a fighting chance. Transfusion? The process is still so slow, I... I wouldn't have the time to treat her as I have you. But if through a transfusion we could gain a little time... It might save her life. It might. I, I've no right to ask this of you, Terry. And I'm not even sure that child's parents will allow it. You can count on me, Margaret. I've been thinking about you, Terry. I mean, what we can do after. Hey, how did anyone as pretty as you ever end up in a laboratory anyway? Oh, it's a long story. I was very much in love once. Oh? He died. He had a blood disease. I see. Things like that shape our lives. Because of... Because the man you love died. Other people. Thousands of them, maybe. We'll get a chance to live. Whatever happens, this... This being here with you... It's done something for me. Done something? I came here fed up with the world. I knew there wasn't any decent human being alive. Whatever happens to me now, I've got a fresh slant on things. I'm glad, Terry. I, I guess I'd better check that path. Hi, Tony. What's the matter with you, Pete? What's the idea of busting in on me like this? Look, I found out where your ex-wife is. What do I care where Sue is now? She can't do me any harm. Yeah, that's what you think. She's working at a laboratory where they got a brother. What? Those two are together? Yeah. I thought he wouldn't speak to her. 
He'll probably try to help him make a break. And if he gets out, you know who will want to see first. Where is this clinic I got risen? On the river drive. It's pretty far out. You want to come with me? Yeah, sure, why not? I'm going to personally see that Risen doesn't make a break. How are you feeling, Terry? Stronger. I think I'm just weak from being off my feet for so long. Terry, I just talked to the parents of that child. They'll take the chance, if you will. You mean the transfusion? I shouldn't have asked you to do it, but she's an only child. She can't live 24 hours in life. This is Saturday. Yes. It's almost eight. Eight? Yes. I can be back with the child in an hour. It's up to you, Terry. All right. I'll do it. Oh, Terry, Terry. You're such a wonderful person. Just, just rest until I get back. I'll be an hour at the most. Okay, Margaret. Now, what am I going to do? Can't walk out on her and the little girl. What am I gonna do? Terry. Terry, she's gone. Not that chance. You've you've given the cop that stuff. Could be asleep in another five minutes. But we've got to hurry. I don't know how long it lasts. She's gone after the little girl. The one who needs a transfusion. I'm thinking of staying. She's counting on me. You'll never get another chance. Once the policeman comes to, we're finished. We've got to hurry. She'd understand. I've got to think of myself. It doesn't matter whether she understands or not. Here. Here's a gun. Now hurry. I'll help you every second count, Terry, every second. No, I can't walk out on Margaret and the little girl. I just can't do it. You're in love with her, aren't you? Yes. But that's only part of it. The biggest part. Look, Terry, if she loves you, she'd want you to save yourself. Now, please. It's no use. I can't run away from this, Sue. I'd never be able to forget that she counted on me and I let her down. Oh, you're so weak. We probably couldn't have made it anyway. Maybe after the transfusion. Oh, police and won't sleep forever. I'm sorry, Sue. I suppose I'm a fool, but that's the way it is. When I should have helped you, I didn't. And now when I try to help, you won't let me. How dare you take your back off me? Margaret thinks we have a chance of reopening the case. Well, I tried. At least I tried. Of course you did. We're all square, Sue. You've got no reason to blame yourself anymore. Someone just came in. She must be back with the little girl. Dr. Galloway? Not exactly, baby. What? Not exactly. Tell me. Piper, or Fetty. That's right. Now, ain't this a picture, Tony? Been missing you at the club, Sue. But I can't say I've missed your newspaper articles. Sir. How did you two get in here? Since you doped the cop, we decided to come in and pay a little social call. Yeah, we thought you two might be planning a trip. Well, you thought wrong. Why else would you dope the cop? You had it all figured out, didn't you, Risen? You were going to get out of here and even things with me with the help of my pretty ex-wife. Tony. I did plan a break, but I changed my mind. When you saw this gun in my hand? No, before you came in. I got news for you, Risen. You and Sue are going to be found dead right here in this laboratory. No, Tony. How do you figure that? I'm going to blast you. Only when the cops find you, they're going to see it as a suicide pact. They'll know Sue's your sister, figure she sneaked the gun into you and that you killed her and yourself rather than go back to prison. Another frame-up, eh, Piper? Even better than before. What was this? I didn't hear anything. Yeah, that's right, Terry. Another frame. Fits you even better than the last one. That cop out there will know Sue drugged him. It's perfect. Both of you will be out of my way permanently. How long do you think you can keep this up, Piper? Framing people, I mean. There'll be no questions asked this time. There weren't many asked the last time. When you shot Weeks, not many people knew I had such a good reason for killing Weeks. And then you were very smart about trapping me. I had such good bait. I knew you wouldn't want anything to happen to Sue. You won't get away with this, Tony. 
There's a policeman on the front door. When he hears the shot... When he hears the shot, he'll come running in and find the two of you dead. The gun in Riston's hand. And me and Pete will be long gone. Come on. Well, let me better get with it. I ain't gonna sleep forever. Yeah, right. Sorry to do this, baby. If you'd played it Tony's way... Put that gun down, Tony. There isn't got a gun. Keep down, Sue, down! Your hands up. Quick. Uh, Peter, you're hurt. My shoulder. All right. Let's have those guns. Back against the wall, you. Harry, Susan, are you all right? Sure. We're all right. Pete's the only one that got hurt. So where did you come from? Well, I came in the back entrance and found O'Brien. I brought him around and he and I got swore. We heard everything. You heard what Piper said about the frame-up? Yes. I'd better call a squad car and an ambulance. Oh, I'm so glad I smuggled that gun. Yeah. Saved our lives. You you were going to break our hands. I never intended to, Margaret. It was my idea. You see, Dr. Galloway, I'm very sister. Did you bring the little girl? Yes, but, but are you sure that you Let's want... Let's go, Margaret. I'm ready. When Dr. Margaret Galloway concluded the presentation of evidence, the entire association rose as a man to give her a resounding ovation. When this tireless doctor's experiments were translated into practical techniques, it will mean the saving of scores of lives yearly. The entire civilized world might well join the association in its tribute to Dr. Galloway. Satisfied? Completely. Recognition of my work, beautifully reported to the public by the man I love. <laughs> Considering I'm a little rusty, I thought it was a pretty well written story. As my husband, dear, you'll forget gangsters and racketeers and concentrate on microbes and sciences. You're the doctor. What a wonderful conclusion for the most successful experiment of our career. Not the conclusion, darling. Only the beginning. So the curtain comes down on the final act of the experiment. This week's Stars Over Hollywood show is presented by Carnation Evaporated Milk and starring Angela Lansbury. In just a moment, we'll have news about next week's show. Meantime, how about a curtain call, Angela? Well, I'd like that very much, huh? And Angela, this might be a very good time to take a second bow as the mother of a new and healthy baby boy, four-month-old Anthony Peter Shaw. Well, I'm glad you mentioned it, Art, because I would have otherwise. My husband and I are so completely delighted we can talk of nothing else. Angela, yours was truly a great performance today. And in appreciation, we'd like you to have something that holds special significance for any carnation mother. This bouquet of red and white carnations. Just like those pictured on every can of carnation evaporated milk. Why, aren't they simply beautiful? Thank you. And Art, I'd like to take this opportunity to remind you young girls listening that there's a career of great interest and service waiting for you as an armed forces or civilian nurse. Inquire at your nearest hospital or collegiate school of nursing the very first chance you get. Now, may I ask what you have planned for next week's show? Well, our star on next Saturday's Stars Over Hollywood show will be Anita Louise. That's wonderful. And the story? It's a dramatic play about a girl who has two separate personalities and finds the way to decide between them. The title is Moonlight Sonata. Mm, sounds good. I won't miss it. And now, goodbye, everyone. Goodbye, Angela Lansbury. The story on today's Stars Over Hollywood was written by John McGreevy. Supporting Miss Lansbury were David Ellis, Lillian Baez, Bill Conrad, Tony Barrett, and Joe Duvall. Music was composed and conducted by Rex Corey, and the program was transcribed and directed by Don Clark.
now for the Carnation Company and stars over Hollywood, this is Art Ballinger, suggesting that you be sure to see the George Burns and Gracie Allen television show, brought to you by Carnation Evaporated Milk. Tune in every Saturday and hear the world's greatest motion picture stars in person on Stars Over Hollywood. Next Saturday, we are proud to present Anita Louise in Moonlight Sonata. Stay tuned now for Grand Central Station, which follows immediately over most of these stations. Stars Over Hollywood comes to you from our Hollywood studios and is heard in Canada over the Dominion Network of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. The Experiment, starring Angela Lansbury 67 years ago in the spring of 1952 on Stars Over Hollywood. Dame Angela turned 94 this past Wednesday. This is the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. There have been novels, plays, documentary films, postage stamps, and even several operas about Harriet Tubman. But never a Hollywood movie... Until now, the freedom fighter, union scout and spy, women's suffragist, and American patriot who died just over a hundred years ago in her 90s is the subject of a new film, Harriet, that opens on November 1st. But it's taken Hollywood over 70 years to catch up to old-time radio. In the drama we're about to hear, you might recognize the voice of the announcer, Hugh Downs, and you'll certainly recognize great radio acting when you hear it from Westland Tilden, as Harriet. It's the episode called Railway to Freedom from July 4th, 1948, stationed WMAQ in Chicago, NBC, and the series Destination Freedom. shadows out of sight of the light of liberty, and I heard their voices call out to me in the dark. They were the voices of slaves. They were the voices of my people. When I heard them, the earth moved under me, rockets burst in my head. They were the voices of God. I was moved. Go down, Moses, Destination Freedom. The Chicago Defender and Station WMAQ bring you Destination Freedom, a special radio series dramatizing the great democratic traditions of the Negro people, interwoven in the pageant of history and a part of America's own Destination Freedom. Today, Destination Freedom dramatizes the story of one of the most remarkable women in world history. It is the story of Harriet Tubman, an American Moses, 
the liberator of 300 slaves, the fearless pilot of the pre-Civil War Underground Railway. Today, we tell of the early life of Harriet Tubman, the chapter entitled, Railway to Freedom. Hello, The voices were still that day on a plantation in Maryland where I grew wild like a weed, one of 11 children, one of a dozen slaves. The voices were still, or I was asleep. But I woke up one day when I heard a slave sing a song. We were husking corn. I knew the song, but there was something in the way he sang it. I stopped husking corn and listened. I looked up at him and said, Song? Huh? What were you singing? Oh, just a little old song. What does it mean, Song? Are you nigh as old as I am? Old enough to know? Know what? To know the ways of the Underground Railroad, Harriet. To know there's a train waiting tonight. And how to tell those who want to come aboard and to come aboard. How do you know all of that? The Talbot woman says so. She keeps track of the train. And you say you're going to cross over and... Look, see the way the old master's looking? He's on to it. Well, I'm going to my cabin. Got to get my things. I kept my eyes open, wide. Saul walked to his cabin. The master followed him. I followed them both. And as I came to the cabin, I heard angry voices. Oh. I stood in the doorway oh. and watched. Run away, will you? No. I'll teach you. Let go. You're choking me. Let me go. I'll kill you. That's what. I'll kill you. I know about you. I've watched you. Let me go. Saul broke away and ran out past me. The master came after him with an iron bar in his hand. And I... I stepped in the way. I blocked the door. Get out of my way, girl. Move or I'll crack your devilish head. I was afraid, but I wouldn't move. I saw him lift the iron bar, and then his hand struck down. The earth moved, and rockets burst in my head. It was dark all around me. I seemed to be lying in a dark river, dreaming. Dreaming that I heard my mother saying, Harriet, you're hurt. Lie back, child. Lie back. I dreamed I heard the master come in and say, she should be whipped and branded. She tried to block my way. Why can't she be peaceful like her brothers? I should have her whipped. She's a good child. She she just followed her mind. She's a very good child. And I dreamed the master came in again and again to look at me. He had slave buyers with him and he'd say... There she is. A girl in her prime. How much am I bid? How did that deep scar get in her head? I buy live slaves, not dead ones. Well, is she dead or alive? Of course she's alive. Next. How much am I bid? She lies there staring like she's in another world, like she's sleeping with her eyes open. I bid nothing. I went on dreaming and dreaming. Inside my head, the rockets kept bursting. I dreamed of a land far away. And when I tried to get up to go, I'd hear my mother say, Harriet, lie back. Tossing like that, you'll throw yourself out of bed, child. Lie back. I sank back into the dark river, 
I lay there floating a long, long time before I heard her say, Now, stand up, Harriet. Look, there you're standing again. Uh, again? It's a miracle. Wait till I tell you, brothers, we've nursed you back to life. Nobody believed you'd live. How long was I sick? Two seasons. Two seasons just lying here? Oh, you'd sleep sometimes, and, and you'd talk out loud sometimes, like you was dreaming. You'd talk about the master. Don't you remember? Mm, some things. I remember some dreams. I remember dreaming about Nat Turner. Don't speak his name out loud. I dreamed I heard Nat Turner call Nonsense. He's been hanged and buried ten years, girl. Get him and his deeds out of your mind. He called me and told me how he burned the plantations and made an army of slaves to fight. And he called me and said, Harriet, do what I did. And I said, I can't do what men do. I can't lead an army. Then he said, you can do more. You can lead an army across the River Jordan. If that's all you dream, then, then keep quiet. That was not all. Didn't you dream good things? Yes. I did dream once I was praying. I was praying for the master and all the masters. They were looking down at me to see if I was worth buying. That was no dream. They were here. I dream I prayed to the Lord to change their hearts. But he would not. Then I said, Lord, if you won't change them, kill them. Well, who talks of killing on my grounds? It's another plot. Well, it's just Harriet's first day out of bed, Master Bodiah. She can stand up now. So this is the little hero who tried to help Saul escape, huh? Now Saul will work his life out in the field where you'll go. Oh, the child is weak, Master. The child is worthless. Scrawny, sickly, she's been a burden to me, but now she'll earn her share. And whatever's in that addle head of yours, girl, get it out. There'll be no revolts, no escape. If you've got any sense left, you'll obey laws. You'll be satisfied. You work in the field. No, please. She's too weak to work in the field. Please. She's too weak to eat. Please. Mother, stand up. The master's right. It's in the field where I should work. Perhaps you really are half-witted. You want the field, huh? I want to work where there'll be fresh air and sunshine. I want to work where I'll grow strong. I'll take the field. And I went into the field. I was weak. I wanted to be strong. I plowed the ground, dug the ditches. I drove oxen. I worked in the yards. I did a man's work. I kept my dreams wrapped around me in the sunshine and the open air. Though some slaves still slipped off on the strange underground railroad, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready until I lost my fears. I lost them the day the master passed me and said, Well, I see you've done your work well, Harriet. Yes, I've worked. Uh-huh. And I can see why you're stronger than anyone else in the county now. In fact, I think you're strong enough to be sold to the Georgia rice fields. Yes, you should bring a right nice fee, don't you think so? He didn't wait for my answer, but I thought, if I'm strong enough to bring a fee, I'm strong enough to be free. When night fell, I went to the cabin of my brothers, George and Lewis. Fear was all around us. I whispered the plan to escape to them. I don't trust you. We'll meet you in the North Woods whenever you say. But I don't like it. It's too risky. I slipped away. I went across the valley to the house of poor white cobblers, the Talberts. 
Mrs. Talbot saw me coming and motioned to me to stay in the yard. She went in her house and came out again with a letter in her hand. Here's some money. It's not much, but it's all I have. Take this letter to the next station. They'll help you from there. How far is it? It's near the border of a free state, Pennsylvania. It'll be a house with a cross on the door. Eileen! Eileen, who are you talking to? Nobody, Jed. Nobody. Just looking at the stars is all. It's my old man. He hates the slaves. They're the cause of us being poor. Eileen! You getting mixed up in that underground business again? No, Jed, no. I'm coming. Hurry now. I'll go. I'll know the way. Just follow the North Star. Ellie! Ellie! I went back to my brothers. I found them in the woods. My heart was pounding. A roar was building up in my head. I talked to them on the trip, but they said... Tonight they're watching all the roads. They always watch the roads. But running against them like this is certain death. And what is slavery? We'll take our chances. You know nothing of the North, you know. I'll not risk it with you. You mean that? I mean it. And you, little brother. Last night another slave was sent to the gallows. He'd been betrayed by those he thought were friends. Your friends could be the same. I'll take my chances here. Stay here. Come on, be sensible. No. No, I won't stay here. Why risk it now? Because there are two things I've got a right to. Liberty or death. One or the other I mean to have. I shall fight for my liberty. And when the time comes for me to go, the Lord will let them kill me. If you go, you'll go alone. I'll go alone. Then go your way. Lewis, come on. Come on. Brother. Oh, brother, don't leave me alone. Brother. The earth moved again. The rocket flew off in my head again. I turned round and round. I thought of my mother, brother, sister, and the row of cabins I could see from where I stood. Then I turned and looked up at the North Star. It was brighter than any star I'd ever seen. I walked toward it. I made my way through the fields and forests, past villages and farms, past patrols and guards, sleeping in the open, in barns and under haystacks. My eyes watched the North Star until I came down into a valley. Then I saw it. I saw a block of houses, and on one there was a cross. I forgot the slave hunters and the patrols and broke into the open and ran toward it. Someone behind me shouted. Hey, you. Stop! Stop! A patrolman. He's seen me. Stop! I ran down into the valley toward the house. I hear the shots and stumbles. I got up and ran on until I lost sight of him. I reached the door, threw myself on it, and beat and beat against it. Let me in. Please, let me in. The door opened, and I was inside. It seemed like a dream. I stretched out my hand, and a hand met mine. It was warm. Two strange faces looked into mine. One said, Levi, take her behind the door. The patrol's coming. You help the woman. Let me handle the patrol, Hannah. They'll be suspicious of you. They're coming. What will you tell them? I'll tell them the truth. Hannah, you can't let them take her back. Wait, woman. I live by my religion. They know that. I'll let them in and answer them. Well, man, do you have to tear my door down? I'm sorry, Madam Godman. A runaway slave came this way trying to cross the state line, I reckon. I'm only doing my duty. And what do you expect me to do? Well, my men are searching the houses along this way. You want to search my house? 
Oh, no. You're a woman of God. You'll tell the truth. Have you seen a slave come this way? A slave? A slave. I've never seen a slave. You're at the wrong door. Thank you, Madam Governor. Thank you. You did it, Anna. The Lord will forgive those who lie to save a life. I did not lie. But you told him... I told the truth. He asked if I'd seen a slave. The Lord says all men are brothers. In the eyes of God, there are no slaves. There are only men and women. I believe God. Who do you believe, Levi? I believed I was in a new world. And when I was rested, my new friend said, No, you're not in free territory yet. This is just the first station on the Underground Railroad. Our station stretched like spider webs. South, north, east. Puritans, Quakers, Negroes run them. You won't be on free ground till you go up the hill through the woods and cross the Pennsylvania line. From there, it's easy. No high sheriffs to hunt you down. Go where you please. Are you ready? To cross that line? I've been ready a long time. When night came, I slipped through the woods. I struck out toward the border. I walked through the woods until it came over me that... Like in a dream, I had crossed the line. I had crossed the River Jordan. I was free. I stood and looked around me. I was free. I looked at my hands to see if I was the same. There was such a glory over everything. The sun came like gold through the trees. I thought I was a part of the air and the sky. I could go to Canada. I'd left behind me the land I hated. Whips and chains and fears and overseers wall behind me. Ahead was a new clear life. And then, somehow, I was lonely. I was free, but there was no one to welcome me. I remembered my home was with my brothers, sister, mother. And then... My head, the earth seemed to move under me. My head seemed to split apart. And I heard the voices of my people calling me. And it was then I knew which way I had to go. I turned from the North Star. I found my way again to the door with the cross on it. It opened before I knocked. Well, welcome back, Harriet. Welcome? Yes. Your supper's ready. It's on the table. You... You expected me to come back? <laughs> yes, don't look surprised, friend. We knew you'd come back. But how? I didn't... Sit down. We've been away stationed for guiding escaped slaves for about ten years now. Some pass this way once and we never see them again. They are satisfied to get their own freedom. Who can blame them? But now and then, one comes our way who's got the flame burning not just for his freedom, but for his brothers, sisters, friends. You burn that way, Harry. How did you know? You were thinking, what a great thing a new liberty is. You were free, but when you thought of millions who were slaves, you said, what good is my being free when my brothers are slaves? Yes, I did. Then you felt you would have no peace until the last slave was freed. That's why you came back. Many men, white and black, feel that way. It's why we run the underground. 
Our part is to wait for slaves to escape and to help them on. That's not the part I want to play. What part do you want? I want to go down and bring them out. I want to put them on the train and guide them. I want to be the conductor. And I went out to learn the ways of the underground. I met the abolitionists. I talked to old John Brown, to fiery Winda Phillips, to fighting Fred Douglas, to the lion Lord Garrison, to the Quakers, the Puritans, and to the conductors and agents. And some said... Lady, you ought to know who to trust when you hit the trail guiding slaves to freedom. I'll tell you. Nobody who owns a slave. Nobody. I'll tell you how it is, Miss Tubman. The Southland is like a fortress. A fortress with the guns turned inside against the people who live in it. If thee goes back too much, Miss Tubman, you'll never get out again. And I worked winters for money to buy food and clothes for slaves, for money to bribe guards and patrols. I worked the lumber mills in Canada all winter to make the money to go down into the fortress. One day, when the boss counted out my season's pay, I thought I had enough to start. Sixty-five, seventy-eight dollars. There. You earned it, all right. A right good log cutter for a woman. Sorry you ain't staying on the next season. I would, but I've got other work to do. I was ready to do my real job. I went down into the slave grounds. I gave the signals, planned the escapes. I talked with them, passed guns to them, planned the outbreaks and went deeper and deeper into the slave belt until my name seemed to spread before me. Sometimes I was a man, sometimes a woman. I walked, I rode horseback, I drove wagons and funeral cars, and once I took a train. Hey, you, where you think you're going? Me, sir? She look mighty, mighty like that rebel slave, Tubman. Speak up. Where's your master? Where are you going? You can see by my ticket. I'm going south. No. South to Maryland. No, I see. No, she couldn't be Tubman. Now, would a rebel slave be heading south? No, sirree. All aboard. Let her roll. into Georgia and rolled out with slaves into Canada. I rolled and roamed the plantations. And when I knew my strength, I went into the state where I was born. I went into the region of the master I had escaped. I went back for my family. I had heard their voices called stronger and stronger. I had heard the voices of my brothers and my mother. I came into the village at early morning. I was an old woman with a cane. I walked near the slaves searching for faces I knew. Then, just two yards from me, I did see a face I remembered. It was the face of my old master. Old woman, where do you belong? Yes? I said, where do you belong? You say something? Of course I said something. I, uh, your mouth opens, but I can't hear no words. Get out of the way, deaf, stone deaf. I got out of the way. I hobbled off to the slave quarters. I moved about until night, and I found the cabin of my brother. I opened the door. Then I stood in the doorway. I could see Lewis struggling to rise. He thought I was the overseer. Is it time for work already? What time is it? It's time to be free, Lewis. What? It's time to be free. Your voice. I'm Harriet. Harriet! Quiet, quiet. Wake up the overseer. 
Where's Mother? Mother? Yes, where's Mother? She and our sister were sold. Where? To whom? I don't know. South. I did my best here. I couldn't help Never them. Never mind. Wherever they are, I'll find them. I took my brother away to the new land. And I took ten more from the rice fields with us. I saved my brother. But as I looked over the land for the woman who had brought me into the world, there was a fear in me I'd never known before. It seemed I was growing cold, deaf again. I could hardly hear friends who'd say... You've had your share of the dangers, Tuffman. Every slaveholder knows and hates you. You'll be worth more to the cause of freedom if you leave the railroad, stay north. What can I do here? Oh, plenty. Travel about the States and tell the people what you've done. I do travel, Mr. Garrison. Yes, but you don't make speeches. I free men. Mr. Garrison, I think one free man is worth a thousand speeches. I didn't say that the pressure on my head was almost too painful to bear. I knew being still would never stop it. I went down again into the armed camps. I went searching along the levees, the swamplands, looking among slave workers until I saw slaves marching from a mill. A guard was calling them on, and one came by, an old woman who looked older than I had ever pretended to be. She looked up into my face. It was my mother. Her lips parted. She said, Harriet, Harriet, my child. All right, what's holding up the line there? Move on. Mother, I've come to get you. Don't talk, child. Don't talk. How will I tell you? Tell them. Sing. Don't talk. Just, just see. Move on up there. Move on. The line passed. She was gone. I went through the men's quarters. I found Saul. Help me, Saul. I have the plans and the money. Help me to tell everyone who wants to come with us to slip away quietly. I can let them know. Go back to the river and wait. I'll sing. Those who understand, they'll come. That evening, Saul walked by the cabins, walked by the overseers and the guards, and he talked to the people. Feel the way, feel the way, feel the way to Jesus. Feel the way. And by nightfall, 19 had stolen away quietly to the riverbank. At night, we waded through the waters. We struck out for Canada. We dodged patrols. We climbed hills. We moved by day and slept by night. One was afraid and said, we, We'll never make it. Already they're catching up with us. The dogs will be on us. We crossed the river again. Once we fought off a patrol and escaped to the hills. Then one man fell behind. One man said to me, I'm not going any further. You're out of your head. I'm going back to live. I won't die out here. I had an answer. An old answer I'd used before on other trips. I put it against his head. But why do you point the gun at my head? You'll go on oh. or you'll die. Oh. Which is... He went on. Night after night, clouds covered the North Star, and I felt the trees for the moss to tell our way. We trudged on, tired, hungry. My mother kept beside me, her head high. And then we broke through the forest and into the clearing... We crossed into Canada. And this time there were people to welcome us. Harriet, Harriet, come over here. Harriet, Levi, and Hannah, and agents from the road. There were hundreds of freed men I had brought out of the slave fields. 
Then I listened to their talk. And it seemed I had made my last trip. Sure you're going to stay home now, Harriet? I... I believe I will. I believe we can get another conductor. I believe I would like to rest. To rest and forget. Then my head seemed to roar again. I heard voices call. The old blow on my head seemed to pain again. The earth moved. Rockets burst in my head. I listened to the voices. They were the voices of slaves. They were the voices of my people. They were the voices of God. I was Moses. I answered them. Go down, Moses. Way down in Egypt land. just heard the story of Harriet Tubman as presented by Destination Freedom, a special radio series dramatizing the great democratic heritage of the Negro people. Destination Freedom is brought to you by WMAQ's Department of Public Affairs and Education and the Chicago Defender. It is written by Richard Durham, and the production is under the direction of Homer Heck. Tubman was played by Weslyn Tilton. The supporting cast included Hope Summers, Melva Williams, Maurice Copeland, Curly Ellison, George Kluge, Arthur McCoo, Charles Mountain, Cliff Norton, and Fred Pinkert. The singer was Greg Pascoe. Richard Shores composed the special music, which was played by Elwin Owen and Bobby Christian. This is Hugh Downs inviting you to be with us again next week for another in our series on the Negro in Democracy. Destination Freedom. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. There's a biography of Destination Freedom's creator, Richard Durham. It was written by our friend Sonia Williams, and she mentions Mr. Durham's ambition, right after the series concluded, to write a stage play about Harriet Tubman... So this radio episode, Railway to Freedom, might have been a kind of first draft of that play. It appeared in Mr. Durham's series on Independence Day in 1948, and now, in 2019, there's a new feature film coming out based on Harriet Tubman's extraordinary life. It's the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Douglas Bell is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, at WRAU 88.3 in Ocean City, and live at WAMU.org. During his lifetime, critical praise was not generally forthcoming for W. Somerset Maugham, the English novelist, playwright, and short story writer. What was forthcoming was success and plenty of it. 
It's said that during the 1930s, he was the most highly paid of any living author. Mr. Mom himself was modest about his own talent. My native gifts are not remarkable, he once wrote, but I have common sense. I told the truth. Some great writers, such as George Orwell and Anthony Burgess, have acknowledged him as an influence, and so have some of the best storytellers, from Ian Fleming to Stephen King. Maybe the most important thing to say about Somerset Mom, and the thing I think he'd most cherish, is that people are still reading him. As recently as this decade, Ruth Franklin wrote in The New Yorker, Of Human Bondage, Mr. Mom's 1915 work, is a deeply imagined and powerfully moving novel. Well, that was certainly the prevailing opinion in 1948, when the NBC University Theater dramatized it for radio. The producers went all out for this one. The script was by Ernest Canoy, one of the all-time greats of radio and the movies. The commentator is Clifton Fadiman. And in the lead roles are Brian Ahern and our 94-year-old birthday celebrant this month, Dame Angela Lansbury. From November 18, 1948, it's the NBC University Theater production of W. Somerset Mom's Of Human Bondage. This is the NBC University Theater, presenting the eighth in our series of dramatizations of outstanding works in modern Anglo-American fiction. Today, with Brian Ahern and Angela Lansbury as our stars, and with Clifton Fadiman as our intermission commentator, we present Somerset Mom's Of Human Bondage. Before the turn of the century, Blackstable Village, England. The vicarage sits at the fork of Tecanbury Road, a small cottage new when Victoria first wore the crown. The garden is neat, the hedges trimmed, and a single tall tree towers over the house. The door knocker is draped in black crepe. The blinds are drawn. Now the front gate opens, and the vicar comes up the path. The young man who follows walks slowly and haltingly. He drags his foot behind him in a clumsy, rolling limp. A sad, clubbed, twisted foot, clad in a misshapen boot. The vicarage door is open now, and the two men go inside. Cold. All right, Uncle. Cold, cold, Philip. But I promised your poor Aunt Louisa I would never let anyone else bury her. <laughs> well, there'll be a hot tea soon. Yeah, let me take your coat, Uncle. Things have changed since I was a curate. In my day, mourners were given a square uh, black silk for their hats. Poor Louisa used to make the silk into dresses. She used to say 12 funerals gave her a new dress. Uh, oh, oh, Philip. Yes, Uncle? Uh, the cigarette. Uh, please put it out. It wouldn't be quite respectful. Well, come into tea. There were 24 wreaths, you know. Mm, I didn't count them. Uh, Mrs. Rawlinson had 32 when she died, but I expect there'll be some others in the morning. Uh, well, sit down. Ah, oh, tea. Uh, 
Philip, you shall have the top of my egg as you did when you were a boy, eh? I used to look forward to the tops of your eggs. You did? I suppose you'll spend the next few weeks with me here. Well, that'll suit me very well. And you'll go back to Paris in September? Uh, no, no. No, but I... I've decided to chuck it. I'm giving up painting. What? I shan't go back to art school. I don't think there's much object in being a second-rate painter, and I shouldn't be anything else. You surprise me, Philip. When you begged me to send you to Paris, you were sure you were a genius. I was mistaken. It seems to me that what you lack is perseverance. Oh, please, Uncle. It's been that way since you were a child. When your poor mother died, Louisa and I took you in, hoping you would eventually take holy orders. But first you insisted on being a chartered accountant. And then when you tired of that, it was painting in Paris. Now, if you change your mind again, it points to... I know. Irresolution, incompetence, want of foresight, and lack of determination. Well, your financial matters are your own affair now. But I think you should remember your money will not last forever. And with your unlucky deformity, it will not be exactly easy to make a living. Yes, yes, Uncle. I've found that when people are particularly angry with me, they always manage to mention my foot. Well... At any rate, you must agree I was right when I objected to your junket to Paris. Oh, I don't know. I dare say one has to make his own mistakes. And it wasn't wasted time, you know. It wasn't. Well, I learned to look at hands and houses and trees against the sky. And I learned that shadows are not black but colored. Nonsense. The most suitable thing you could do now is to follow your father's profession. Medicine. Oddly enough, that's what I intend. I've already written to St. Luke's in London, and they inform me that I qualify for the medical school. I start in September, Uncle. I shall be studying anatomy with a, a scalpel in place of a brush. <laughs> September. I say there, are you a new man? What? Oh, yes. My name's Griffiths, Harry Griffiths. Oh, I'm Philip Carey. Phew. Oh, you'll soon get used to that smell. The whole hospital picks it up. I believe you're marked down with me for the same body. I'm afraid I don't know much about this. Oh, don't worry, I do. Well, <clears throat> might as well get started. Mm-hmm. I'm going in for surgery. You? Uh, just the general course. I say, you're rather a dab at this. Oh, I've done a good deal of dissecting before. Well, I say, don't cut that artery. It doesn't seem to be in the, in the normal place. I... They never are. That's why it's called normal. Well, when we're, when we're through with this, how about tea? Hmm? Well, <laughs> don't let the laboratory smell get you. You'll get used to it. I never let it bother me. Tea, then, and perhaps a muffin. Oh, mind the veins. Here you are, sir. Two teas and muffins. Thank you. Cream, Kerry? No, thank you. Got any friends in London? No, uh, not even seen to lodgings. Well, there's a room to let below me. It's right across from the hospital. I dare say you could get that. Oh, I shall certainly inquire. You'll be, of course, pretty busy for the first three months. That's the biology exam, you know. But after that, there's lots to do in London. Oh, I'm afraid I'm not the social type. But the best I can do is the gallery at a music hall. Music hall? Oh, there's a bigger game than that. Here, now, take that girl, the waitress. She's uh, somewhat like, hmm? Which one? Oh. Oh, they wouldn't look at her in Paris. 
too thin. She looks anemic, sort of sort of unhealthy. Oh, but what a ripping face. Let's get her over here. What? Seems to be quite busy with that German-looking chap, talking 16 to the dozen. Oh, I don't know. All I'd want is a lead. Her name's Mildred, I asked. Mildred? What an odious name. Why? I like it. Oh, it's so pretentious. I say, Carrie, here she comes. Give us a hand, will you? Well, but... I've but, never uh, been able to talk to her. Do be a good chap. Well, I, I don't know. Go on, will you? Just a lead. Will there be anything else, gentlemen? <laughs> uh, we were waiting for you anxiously, Mildred. I? I don't know what you mean. We can hardly wait for you to finish with the nobleman with the sandy moustaches. <laughs> right, Griffiths? <laughs> Some people would do better to mind their own business. I've got nothing to say to customers like you, and I don't want them to say nothing to me. If that's all, I'll get the bill. Oh, ho, ho, ho. there's one in the eye for you, Carrie. Pale mannered baggage. You did get her back up, you know. I'm quite indifferent to the attitude of her vertebrae. All right, old man, calm down. Did you notice her skin? It's unhealthy, greenish. Here now, Carrie, come off it. She's only a waitress. Yes, sir. What'll it be? Uh, tea, please. Tea. Right, sir. Something wrong? Eh? You're staring. Oh, oh, am I? Sorry. It's impolite, you know. Tea, eh? Oh, it's you again. Still busy with your German friend, eh? Look here now. I talk to who I wish. It's no concern of yours, you know. Tea? Uh, yes, uh, tea. You've been there again, eh, Kerry? What? Where? That tea shop. She got under your skin, eh? Well, that waitress. Oh, nonsense. Nonsense? Ha-ha. <laughs> I can't understand it. I... I wish to heaven she'd say something really cheeky so that I could report her and get her sacked. She's so unspeakably vulgar. Vulgar and yet... Uh... Oh, well, at any rate, I shan't go there again. Oh, it's you. I thought you weren't coming. Busy cutting up, people. <laughs> Not as bad as that. You're a student, aren't you? Uh, yes. Oh. What's that paper? I didn't know you could draw. Oh, I was an art student for two years. Is it meant to be me? Yes. Hmm. Where's that young fellow that used to come in with you? <laughs> Fancy you're remembering him. He was a nice-looking fellow. I, um... I say, I... I wonder if you'd dine with me one night and come to the new musical comedy. I'll get a couple of tickets. Let's see you asking me to the theatre. Well, do you want to go? I don't mind. That you, Kerry? Griffiths? Oh, you don't mind my barging in, eh, Kerry? The blasted grates caved in up in my room, cold enough to freeze the ink. Oh, it's all right. Oh, something wrong? You look like a thundercloud. Where have you been? The theatre. Griffiths, I... I can't understand it. What? She, she's not pretty. Her, her mouth is thin, ugly. She, she's cheap and common. 
but she's so odiously genteel, a little finger sticking straight out when she drinks her. Her skin is sickly and greenish, with a pallor like those, those blasted specimens on the slab at the hospital. And yet, and yet, heaven help me, I... Carrie! I'm, I'm not happy with her, but I, but I can't stand being away. I, I lie awake at night thinking of that thin, awkward body and those pale, bloodless lips and... And heaven help me, I, I, I want to kiss them over and over. Oh, I say, Carrie, old chap, aren't you well? You haven't been in at lectures for over a week. The bio exam's coming up, you know. I don't know. I I can't seem to get at the books. I, I keep thinking of her. It cuts clear through me. Why, right now, right now, Griffiths, I'm... I'm aching for her. I, I, I hate her. She she revolts me. She, she nauseates me. And yet, Griffiths, I... I love her. In early today, eh? The regular, I suppose. Um, why don't you sit down? Nobody's wanting you just now. I don't mind if I do. <laughs> Where's your German friend with the moustache? Haven't seen him lately. Oh, he's gone back to Birmingham. He only, he only comes up to London every now and again. Is he in love with you? I don't know what it's got to do with you if he is. You don't set much store on me, do you? Why should I? I, uh, Mildred, you are going to the theatre with me tonight. You promised last week. Oh, I'm awfully sorry I shan't be able to come after all. Why? Don't look so stern about it. I, uh, my aunt was taken ill last night. Oh. Well, I'll see you home, then. You can't see me home. I've, uh, I've made other arrangements. I dare say. I saw you with Miller last night. What, you dirty little cat? Were you spying on me? I thought she was a gentleman. Did you think a gentleman would take any interest in you? Here now. Miller's taking you out this evening, isn't he? Well, I'd rather have him than you tagging after. And now perhaps you'd mind your own business in the future. Oh, I, I said, don't be beastly with me, Mildred. You know, I, I'm awfully fond of you. <laughs> I can't go on like this, Mildred. I can't study. I, I failed the first board examination. I keep thinking of you. Oh, you've got to come with me this evening. You're a funny fella. I can't make you out. It's very simple. I'm such a blasted fool that I... I love you with all my heart tonight. And I know you don't care tuppence for me. Oh. Well, if you're a gentleman in every sense of the word, you'll beg my pardon. What? That was a very nasty trick spying on me. Well, you haven't begged my pardon yet. I... I... I'm very sorry, Mildred. I beg your pardon. I say, Jerry. Jerry, the stage is that way, you know. Hey, what? You keep staring up at the gallery. In a music hall, one generally looks at the stage. She's up there now, with Miller. See, by the second column. She went tonight with him. Oh, come on, Grippers, let's go home. Oh, oh, oh. 
There you stuck yourself, didn't oh, you? What the devil? That comes a put in your arm where it's got no business to be. That pin always catches them when they try putting an arm around my waist. Mildred, I can't go on this way. I, I, I've got to know. I know. We're off again. I always asking me if I love you over and over and over. Well, I can't help it. Well, if you really loved me, you'd ask me to marry you. I shan't be earning a penny for six years till I've qualified as a doctor. You've got some money, haven't you? Fourteen hundred pounds. But I've got to keep myself on that. But they say two can live as cheap as... That would be four pounds a week. Three? I've got my fees to pay. <laughs> well, you needn't worry, because I wouldn't marry you if you went down on your bended knees to me. Well, of all the bloody cheek... I wish you wouldn't use bad language when you speak to me, Philip. You know I don't like it. If I had an ounce of sense, I'd never see you again. If you only knew how I despise myself for loving you. Well, that's fine, isn't it? Because, you see, I'm going to get married. Are you? I'm 24. It's time I settle down. Well, you might congratulate me. I might. Well, who are you to marry? Miller. He makes seven pounds a week now. And he's got prospects. I know. You were bound to accept the highest bidder. Well, when does it take place? Saturday next. I've already given notice at the tea shop. I'm tired. I'm going home to bed now. But, Philip... Driver, stop here and then take the young lady to Victoria Station. But won't you come up with me? It's not proper to leave... We'll make a full stop now, Mildred. I don't see why I should go on making myself unhappy. Goodbye. But, Philip... What? Oh, don't worry. I've paid for the cab. <laughs> Will you? I've got someone to meet you here. Oh, I can't be bothered. Well, what are you up to? Studying. I've got six months' work to make up. Oh, be a good chap, Griffiths, and dash off. What's come over you? I'm free, Griffiths. Free! She's off to be married, and I'm free. That girl, huh? But, you know, I've even tried to think of her, and I can't. <laughs> now, do be a good chap and be off. Well, I I've got somebody upstairs for you to meet. I promised. Well, I... Oh, I... come along, Kerry. Those books will keep. Anyway, it's time for tea. And I want you to meet Nora. Oh, that's silly, Mr. Carey. Oh, no, it isn't. You'd make an admirable painting. Your face has character, you know. You mean wrinkles. That's what I get for earning a living instead of being supported as a lady ought. <laughs> what are you doing now, Nora? <laughs> Writing those penny novelettes. They pay 15 pounds a piece, and it's just the same thing over and over with the names changed. Then, every once and again, I get a walk-on role in some theatrical spectacle. I manage. I think you do wonderfully. <laughs> oh, so long as I have the rent and a pound or two for food, I don't worry. Well, gentlemen, are you taking me out to dine? Uh, I don't think I can. Oh, Blanchett, you must come along, Mr. Carey. And you shall see me home. It's my birthday today, and I insist on having my own way. <laughs> and I was dreadfully in love with her. You know, I, I can't imagine why I've told you the whole story. Well, I think you're well out of it. Poor thing, you must have had a rotten time. I, I'm so grateful to you for being so nice to me. I like you so much. <laughs> Don't be idiotic. <laughs> I say, may I? Oh, why did you do that? <laughs> because it's so, so comfortable to kiss you. 
<laughs> you know, it's awfully silly of you to behave like this. I've only just met you. We could be such jolly friends. Well, if you really want to appeal to my better nature, you'll do well not to stroke my cheek while you're doing it. <laughs> it's very wrong of me, isn't it? Nora, you're not fond of me, are you? You ask rather dull questions for a clever boy. Oh. Oh, it, it never struck me that you could be. Oh, Nora. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm dashed. Why? I, I'm so surprised. And pleased. Delighted and... And so proud and so happy and and so grateful. Oh, Nora, it's, it's like waking out of a, a horrible, degrading dream. I, I'm so terribly happy. Now, Philip, don't. You must get back to your books. Oh, I can't work any more now. You've got to pass the next examination. We've failed it once already. Ah, but that was before you. <laughs> Perhaps you'd better go down to your uncle's at Blackstable to study. Why? Are you tired of me? <laughs> no, silly. Because you've been working hard and you look utterly washed out. You want some fresh air. Rest. You know, I wouldn't believe anyone else who said that. Nora, I wonder what you see in me. Will you give me a good character with my month's notice? I'll say that you're thoughtful and kind. Oh, that's all nonsense, dear. But I will tell you one thing. I'm one of the few people I've ever met who are able to learn from experience. Well, that's all there was to it, Kerry. McAllister tipped me off. I bought the stock then. I sold it when he said to, and there I was. Fifty guineas to the good. I wish I'd known, Harry. I'm running rather low, and I'm frightfully keen on raising a few pounds myself. Well, here we are. Oh, are you stopping at the rooms? Yeah, I'm expecting Nora for lunch. Well, I shall have to be off to the hospital. Goodbye, Kerry. See you for supper. devil do you want? I didn't think I'd see you again. Well? It's Emil. He's gone and left me. Miller ran off, eh? I... Well, you better sit down. I wish I'd married you when you asked me. Tell me, what's happened? Well, last Monday week he went up to Birmingham and I didn't hear from him for a week. I wrote and... And this morning I got a solicitor's letter saying I had no legal claim on him. Oh, but that's absurd. A man can't treat his wife that way. He was right because I told him a baby was coming. He said it was my fault. I found out precious quick he wasn't a gentleman. I wouldn't go back to him now. Not if he was coming to ask me on his bended knees. But he's got to provide for you. You ought to see a solicitor. Uh, I can let you have some money now. Oh, you are good to me, Philip. Are you fond of me still? I love you, Mildred. I suppose I always did. Philip, you're a gentleman in every sense of the word. In every sense of the word. You're quiet today, Philip. Something wrong? Huh? 
Say something nice to me. What shall I say? Mm, you might, by an effort of the imagination, say that you were rather liked me. Nora, I, um, I shan't be able to be with you tomorrow. But I've asked the Gordons to lunch. They'll be disappointed. Where will you be? I, I don't like to be forced to account for all my movements. Flip. Oh, I, I'm sorry, Nora. You're your own master, I suppose. I don't want you to do anything you don't want to. Maybe, Nora, maybe we'd better leave it at that. What? The whole thing's over. You mean you don't love me anymore? I'm afraid so. I, I can't help it, really. <laughs> oh, I, I'm awfully sorry to hurt you. It, it's not my fault that I don't love you. I know. I can't help myself, really. Mildred's come back. Oh. Will you call me a cab? I, I don't feel I can walk. I'll drive back with you if you like. I, I hope you'll forgive me, Nora. Poor fellow, you, you're quite worried about me. You mustn't bother. Oh, Nora. I, I don't blame you. I shall get over it. Mildred, another five pounds? I don't really know where the money goes to. It just slips through my fingers like water. And I'll have to make arrangements for someone to look after the baby for seven and sixpence a week. What do you mean, farm the child out? Oh, it's all very fine to look shocked, but it's jolly difficult for a girl to earn a living by herself when she's got a baby tagging after. I'm glad it's over, and I don't mean to let the little wretch tie me down. Perhaps I can beat him down to six and sixpence. Oh, for heaven's sakes, don't haggle over the price. I, I'd rather pay half a guinea a week than run the risk of the kid being starved or beaten. <laughs> you are a funny old thing, Philip. I know. Well, are we going somewhere tonight? Tonight? I've been stuck in that old lodging house just about long enough. I want to see people, have a good time. Oh, I thought we might be alone together. Ah, oh, that's so dull. Do let's have a dinner party, Philip. Is that friend of yours still about? The student? Griffiths? <laughs> I suppose he would amuse you. Well, all right, Mildred. I'll get tickets for a musical comedy. Oh, you are good to me, aren't you, Phil? <laughs> You are a funny fellow. <laughs> That's the funniest thing. Phil, isn't that the funniest thing? Mr. Griffiths, you're a real armor. Why, you must call me Harry. After all, I've never heard Philip call you anything but Mildred. I say, Carrie, is that all right? No, of course. Hadn't we better be going, Mildred? So soon. I've no such a time in ages. It's early, isn't it, Harry? Well, I, I think uh, we'd better go. It's a rotten show anyway. Can't think what you both see in it. What the devil's been eating you tonight, Kerry? Are you in love with Mildred? I? Oh. Oh, is that it? Of course not. It doesn't matter to you, Harry. You, you've got so many women. Oh, don't take her away from me. It means my whole life. I, I've been so awfully wretched. Oh, my dear boy, if I'd known you were going to take it like that, I'd have been more careful. Is that true? I don't care tuppence for her, old boy. I give you my word of honor. Oh, Harry, I, I feel so miserable, so, so confounded and degraded, but she's all I've got. I, I've got to hold on to her.
Well, you were flirting quite with Griffiths last night. Did you have a good time? <laughs> I adore him, Philip. I'm quite in love with him. Oh. Well, I'm glad to know that he's not in love with you. How do you know? I asked him. Oh? Then would you like to read a letter I received from him this morning? What? He's asked me to go off with him. No. I rather love him, I think. I can't help it. No, Mildred, no, you can't. I, I've waited so. I, I've paid for everything. I, I'm paying for the keep of your baby. I've paid for every stitch that you've got on now. If you was a gentleman, you wouldn't keep throwing it at oh, me. Oh, for heaven's sake, shut up. If I were a gentleman, I wouldn't waste my time on a vulgar drab like you. What? Listen here, I never liked you from the beginning. You forced yourself on me. I always hated it when you kissed me. I'm going off with Griffiths here. I wouldn't let you touch me now, not if I was starved. Well, you will be. Griffiths owes me seven pounds and he's just pawned his microscope. I don't care. It's hard, isn't it? Uh, fancy anybody <laughs> wanting to be in love. Ow. Oh, here. Here. I'll lend you ten pounds. Oh, Phil. Take it. Take it and go with Griffiths. You are a gentleman in every sense of the word, aren't a you? Gentleman. Go on, Mildred, go. Go on, get out. I, I'll be here if you... if you want me when you come back. From Hollywood, the NBC University Theater is presenting Brian Ahern and Angela Lansbury in our adaptation of the Somerset Mom novel of Human Bondage, the eighth in our series of dramatizations of outstanding works by modern British and American authors. Information on how to obtain free materials on the authors and books presented in this series will be given at the close of the program. Now, here to discuss the Somerset Mom work is our intermission commentator, the distinguished author, lecturer and critic, Mr. Clifton Fadiman, speaking to you from New York. Of human bondage occupies a peculiar position in Somerset Maugham's career and also in modern literature in general. It appeared quite a long time ago, in 1915, and although Maugham at that time had already acquired a certain reputation, this novel, now considered a classic, fell flat. Its virtues, the virtues of truth, sincerity, and gravity, seem perfectly apparent to us now. But it would seem that they were not so apparent then. The book was more or less of a failure. Nevertheless, it refused to die. It enjoyed a kind of underground reputation for some years, was rediscovered several times in the 20s, and at last slowly worked its way into a kind of contemporary immortality. Its position in Maugham's own career is equally curious. He's written perhaps, so oh, 40 or so books, but no one of them, even Cakes and Ale, is comparable to Of Human Bondage. Many are interesting and skillful, but no one of them has the tremendous emotional drive, the heartfelt sincerity, the broad and sober humanity of this tale of the young man's awakening to the complexity of the world and to the agony of love. Of Human Bondage was the perfect, almost accidental product of certain special pressures in Maugham's own personal life. Pressures that were never again repeated. 
it's quite largely autobiographical. Like Philip Carey, Mom himself at first studied to be a doctor, though he never actually practiced. And like Philip, he spent some years in Paris, amid precisely the bohemian society so graphically portrayed in the novel. And like Philip, Mom himself suffered from a physical disability. In his youth and young manhood, he was afflicted with a distressing stammer, just as Philip had to overcome the pain and difficulty of a club foot. This novel bears in solution Mom's own personality before it gelled and settled into the man-of-the-world figure with which his later work has familiarized us. This novel bears in solution Mom's own personality before it gelled and settled into the man-of-the-world figure with which his later work has familiarized us. It has a sincerity, a passion that was never to reappear, just as it contains many crudities that the older Mom has softened and refined. As a study of a superior man's obsession for an inferior woman, it's probably unsurpassed in the English language. Mildred is one of the great female characters in the history of the novel, like Emma Bovary or Becky Sharp. The relation between her and poor Philip is exposed with such pity and penetration as to enable this novel to bear with dignity the weight of its superb tragic title. This is quite truly a narrative of human bondage, of the bondage that all of us feel in one way or another, bondage to another human being, to a false idea, or merely to the sad, insoluble, puzzling tangle of modern life itself. Thank you, Mr. Fadiman. Our dramatization of Somerset Mom's Of Human Bondage... The cold, wet London months went by. Philip gave his landlady notice and moved his lodgings to a cheaper district. He tried to drive his mind faster, to make up the long months of studying he'd ignored. And then, when spring lifted the cold siege of the winter months, he made his way up the familiar stairs to the garret flat where he had laughed and been happy with Nora. Philip. Philip, come in. Hello, Nora. Sit down. I've just poured tea. Do have a cup. Uh, uh, oh, thank you. <laughs> oh, it's awfully jolly to be sitting in this room again. You don't know how I've missed it. Why on earth didn't you come before? I was afraid to. You needn't have been. I treated you awfully badly. I, I'm dreadfully ashamed of myself. Mildred's gone. She's gone off with Griffiths now. I haven't heard at all. Oh. I've thought so much of your kindness. I was happy with you, Nora. I... I should have stuck with you. I, I didn't know how, how wonderful you were. I've been such a fool. I'm afraid you've had a rotten time. I'm dreadfully sorry. Philippa. Yes? I'm engaged to be married. Charlie Kingsford, the journalist, you know. Oh. Uh, wish I hadn't made such a fool of myself. I'm sorry. You were never really in love with me. It's not very pleasant, being in love. <laughs> well, it's a good joke on me, you know. <laughs> very good. Philip. <laughs> but it's not very comfortable to have the gift of being amused at one's own absurdity. I... Uh, well, <laughs> goodbye, Nora.
Miss Heather, Carrie. Carrie! There's no sense you cutting me, you know. Oh, please. I've been looking for you. All over the hospital. I did want to be friends again. Oh, let go my arm, Griffiths. I wish to heaven I'd never seen that woman. Do you... Do you know where Mildred is now? Thank heaven, no. If I'd known she was going to be so devilishly hard to get rid of, I wouldn't have bothered in the first place. I say, Kerry, don't go. Griffiths, I don't want to talk to you, and I don't see why I should. But uh, I I say... I want it on the ward. Now, now, let me alone. Get those prehensile, preadamite claws off me, you please, you please. now. Or witch, foul hag of innocence. Here now, you can't pull me back. Here, here, here. What's all the noise? Oh, doctor, this here patient's cutting up real fancy. Be gone, Mephisto's all daughter. Right, all right, I'll take care of it. Now, 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 creation. No. What's wrong? That foul-faced fiend was about to confiscate my book. Oh, well, let's see your chart. Hmm. Thorpe Athelney, eh? Journalist. Of sorts. Huh? What sorts? Advertisements for linen sedley, linen drapers. Oh, that's an odd name, Athelney. It's old Yorkshire. He used to be quite an estate generations back, but the mighty have fallen. Fast women and slow horses. Rather surprised to see you in the ward? I mean... No, my principle is to profit by every benefit society provides. I have no false shame. I come to the hospital ward to be patched up, and I send my children to board school. Do you really? And a capital education they get, too. Much better than I got at Eton. I've got nine, you know. Huh. Just come and see them when I get home again. I've taken a fancy to you. You will come, eh? Well, there now, it's settled. I shall expect you Sunday week. There you are, Mr. Carey. And that table brought all the way from Spain. He took a month's salary, but it was worth it. It's teakwood. That's exceedingly handsome. Indeed. I believe in living the old ways. It is my theory that people in those days got more... Mother says you're to stop talking. Dinner's ready, and I'm to bring it in when you sit down. Come and shake hands with Mr. Carey. Isn't she enormous? She's my eldest. Come on, Father. Sit down at the table. Well, uh, won't we wait for Mrs. Athelney? I always have meals by myself. I don't think women ought to sit at table with men. It puts ideas in their heads. And women are never at ease with themselves when they have ideas. Now then, what's first, Sally? The Yorkshire pudding, Father. Uh, and you've never tasted anything like it. You see, it's an advantage I have. My wife isn't a lady, which guarantees the cooking. <clears throat> now, a jug of beer now, Sally, to top off the feast. Oh, well, I'll have to run out for it, Father. Hmm, let's see, uh, sixpence here somewhere. Tell me, Kerry, did you ever see such a handsome strapping girl? It'll be a lucky swain who gets you, eh, Sally? <laughs> I shudder to think what will happen when she puts her hair up, eh? <laughs> Do stop talking, Father, or the dinner will get cold. Right you are. Roast beef, Mr. Kerry? <sighs> Never marry a lady, my boy. Roast beef in Yorkshire pudding for Sunday dinner. That's what I've taught Sally she's to do when she's married, right? Yes, Father. You call when you're ready for cheese. Well, Carrie, it's been a jolly evening. I'm afraid I'm coming to see you too often. <laughs> Nonsense. The door is always open. Oh, but every Sunday. Uh, <laughs> well, I've got to leave you now. Next Sunday, eh, Philip? 
Well, uh, certainly. I, I should love to. Remember then, come early. The children seem to like it immensely. Goodbye now. Mind your way in the fog. Goodbye. Go on, get about your business. Here now. Go on now. Oh, right, if you mean to be nasty. Good Lord. What? Mildred. Fancy Mildred. you. Oh, this is awful. Is there anywhere we can go and talk? I don't want to talk. Leave me alone. I, I've got a couple of sovereigns if you're that hard up. I don't know what you mean. I'm just on my way home to my lodgings. I was, was going to meet a girl. For heaven's sake, don't lie now. <laughs> come along, come along. There's a bobby coming. We've got to move on. Mildred, it's awful. You don't think I like living this way? Anyway, I, I should think you'd be pleased. Where's the baby? I've got her with me in London. I don't have the money to keep her on at Brighton. Well, wouldn't they take you back at the shop? I walked my legs off looking for work. Why didn't you write to me? I didn't like to, not after what happened. Anyway, I thought you'd just say I got what I deserved. You don't know me very well, do you? Even now. You mean you still care for me, Philip? No, I, I'm over it. I'm sorry for you now. Oh, you are a gentleman in every sense of the word. You're the only one I ever met. I hate asking you, Philip, but can you spare me anything? I've only got two pounds on me. My money's almost gone, Mildred. I'll pay you back. What will you do now? I wish I was dead. Look here. If you really want to get away from it, I've got an extra room. You could clean up for me and cook. I don't suppose the baby eats much. You mean to say you take me back after all that's happened? I don't want you to mistake me. I'm just giving you a room in exchange for your cleaning up. Do you understand? Oh, Philip, you are so good to oh, me. Come along. Now it's late. And I've got to be up early in the morning. More meat? You're very silent tonight, Mildred. I'm paid to cook and clean. I didn't know I was expected to talk oh, as what well. What the devil's wrong now? You haven't been nice to me all week. Mildred, I thought we had that settled. I'm over that. I don't love you anymore. Well, I'm not the one to go down on my hands and knees. Then what do you want? You're not in love with me. Me? Not likely. And you can't say you're of a passionate nature... So what in heaven's name is bothering it's you? It's so humiliating. Oh, for heaven's sake, Mildred. I might be poisonous. No, no, let's not have a scene. You asked me to marry you once. Oh, please, Mildred. Why are you so horrid to me, Phil? Don't talk rot. It isn't rot. I do love you, Phil, really. I want to make up for all the harm I did you. I can't go on like this. It's not in human nature. I loved you too much, Mildred. I, I wore the passion out. I can't look at you now without thinking of Miller and Griffiths and... Philip. Don't be such an old silly... Oh, Mildred. It's just like old times, isn't it, Philip? Mildred, isn't let it? go, let go. You, you, you disgust me. Me? I disgust you. You loathsome, foul, dirty, nasty. I've never cared for you. Not once I was making a fool of you always. You bored me. You bored me... Mildred. I would never let you touch me only for the money. It made me sick when you kissed me. You laughed at me. Griffiths and me, we laughed at you. We laughed at you because you were such a mug. A mug, a mug. You, you, you cripple. I say, Kerry, don't go off now. 
Well, I suppose there's no reason to, Griffiths. I've been looking for you. Do you remember that flutter you had with my stockbroker, pal? Of course. Well? Well, the fact is, I, I, I mean, what were the, the, the boars holding out so long? Well, you see, it, it seems that... You mean I'm wiped out, eh? McAllister asked if you could put up some more security. <laughs> my friend, I've just pawned my other suit and I'm to be tossed out of my lodgings on Saturday week. You mean you're stony? But how'll you go on at the medical school? I shan't. I'm on my way now to look for work. There's only one thing wrong. Yes? There isn't any. What's this? What? What? Oh. Now, now, you can't sleep in the embankment. Up now. All right. All right, I, I'm going. That's a good chap. Now, you move on, see? And stay moved on. I don't want no vagrancy on my beat. But I... I no I, more I... nonsense now. Move on. Hello. Philip, where have you been? I, uh... I've been away. You have, eh? Sally, set the kettle on. Philip's here. Now, come inside. Oh, Mr. Carey. Oh, we've missed you these Sundays. Oh. Sally, we'll have dinner immediately, eh? Uh, <clears throat> I'm exceedingly hungry. Oh, yes, Father. Won't you have an egg and a glass of milk while you're waiting, Mr. Carey? Uh, no, no, I, I'm all right. Certainly you are. Here, sit down. <laughs> What's happened since I saw you last, Sally? Nothing that I know of. Nothing? <laughs> that hussy taunts me with the fact that a gentleman who sells gents' collars has made her an offer of marriage. <laughs> <coughs> and have you <coughs> accepted him, Sally? Oh, you should know father better than that. There is no word of truth in it. <coughs> now sit down, both of you. I'll have dinner out in a moment. <coughs> Smoke? Have a tuppenny stinker. I, I don't think I'd better. Hmm? Now, see here, Philip. I wrote you a letter last week, and I was round to your rooms Wednesday. Where have you been sleeping all this week? Nowhere. Well, why didn't you come here? We've been just as broke in our day. Only we had babies to look after. It seems ridiculous, but I, I believe I'm going to cry. Nonsense. I, uh, I believe there's a chance of you getting some work at my shop. We're advertising for a shop walker. Six bob a week with food and lodging. Here you are, Father. Roast beef and pudding. Capital. Sally, Mr. Carey's coming to live with us. Oh, that's nice. I'll go and get the spare bed ready. Gentlemen's collar, sir, and the second to left. Yes, madam. Uh, ladies' bonnets, first right. Uh, sheets and cases, they'll be on the third floor front, please. Curtains, madam, third turning to the left. <laughs> and you're to be promoted, eh, Philip? <laughs> no more money, though, never fear. The manager found out I was an art student once, and he set me to designing the custom clothes. Hmm. A lowering of the divine metier of Giotto and El Greco, but twill serve. Oh! Something wrong? Uh, there's a letter for you. The boy brought it around from the hospital. Oh, well, thank you. 
Hmm. Nothing wrong, I trust? Uh, I, I shall have to make a call. I wish to heaven that letter hadn't come. Philip. Oh, I suppose you were surprised to hear from me. What do you want? A doctor. Then I'm no use to you. I'm no longer at the hospital. How's that? I had to give it up a year and a half ago. Couldn't afford to go on with my training. Oh, you, you not forgot your doctoring? No, not entirely. Because that's why I wanted to see you, Philip. You're ill? Philip, you will look at me. If you wish. Please, Philip. I'm, I'm frightened. What are you complaining of? Well, it's a rash. I've broken out. I can't get rid of it. Philip, I'm afraid. I couldn't stand going to the hospital. You were the only one I could turn to, Philip. This rash, it's terrible. Oh, for heaven's sake, Mildred, don't get hysterical. Now, let's have a look at you. Can you tell, Phil? Is it... Hmm. Hmm. Uh, let me look at your throat. Wider. Mildred, I'm afraid you're very ill. Very ill indeed. Philip, no. Well, what did you expect? Oh, well, I had to live somehow. What was I to do? Really, Mildred, I, I'm awfully sorry. <laughs> oh. Have you any money? Six or seven pounds. You must give up this life, you know. Don't you think you could get some work? What is there I could do now? Well, I can't help you now. I only make six bob a week. Don't be downhearted. Oh, oh, don't leave me. I'm so afraid. Don't go yet, Phil. There's no one else I can go to. Mildred, you've come back twice. And twice you... Oh, I know. I've treated you shocking, but don't leave me alone now. Oh, you've had your revenge. For heaven's sake, Mildred. You know baby died last summer. Oh. You might say you were sorry. Well, I'm not. It's best for the child. Look, Mildred, I'll get you the medicine, and you're to take it, mind. And then you've got to get some honest work. Oh, I've learned my lesson, Phil. No more racketing around for yours, truly. I won't go back to it. Not me. Mildred. What? Oh, it's you. I waited outside. Where are you going, Mildred? Oh, 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 I was just going in to see the show. Down Marbury Lane? <laughs> Not likely. Why, well, well, I can't sit home alone all the time, can I? Mildred, I just warned you. You're not fooling me. I'm not blind. I told you over and over how dangerous it is. You're sick. You've got to stop this sort of thing at once. Oh, hold your jaw. I just suppose I'm going to live. Let me take you back home. You don't know what you're doing. It's criminal. What do I care? Men haven't been so good to me that I need bother my head about them. Let go my arm, Philip. Mildred. Let go! I can't do anything more. That's the end. Hurry now, Philip. Swallow your tea. You'll be late for the shop. Not today. I'm chucking it. Quitting. 
What? I got the solicitor's letter this morning. My uncle's gone, and the auction of his goods will clear my fees at the medical school. What? Splendid! Then you've got less than a year to qualify. Betty, Sally, break out a bottle of the shilling port. We've a celebration. Our Philip's going back to his doctoring. What's ever wrong, Father? The world is turning up again. Sally, you must kiss Philip to celebrate his good fortune. Oh, I'm not. I don't like being kissed by men. Huh. Ungrateful, hussy. Well, the wine will have to do. We'll drink to Dr. Philip Carey. Mr. Carey. Eh? Oh, Sally. You, you didn't think it disagreeable of me not to kiss you last week at the celebration the way father wanted me to? Oh, not a bit. Oh, well, go on reading. I just thought as you were alone, I'd come and sit with you. You know, you're the most silent person I've ever struck. <laughs> we don't want another who's talkative in this house. Father does nicely. <laughs> So you're the new assistant, eh? Yes, sir. Uh, got a club foot, huh? <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, don't stammer about it. Nothing wrong. Uh, you're not a university man, are you? No, sir. Good. They are too blasted gentlemanly for me. Uh, very well, you'll do. Uh, breakfast at 8.30. Oh, Well, Carrie, it's been six months, eh? Yes, sir. I'm leaving Tuesday week. Mm, that's so. Uh, look here. Why not stay? Sir? I'm offering you a partnership. Why? I like you. Well, what do you say? The practice brings around 700 a year, and when I die, you can succeed me. And that's better than knocking about the hospitals. I, I, I don't think I can. I... I've had a roughish time, and I, and I want to get away. I think I'll try for a position on a tramp steamer. I want to see Spain and, and the South Seas. and Oh, I've a sort of ache for places I've never been. At any rate, I, I mean to leave England. Mm, going to tramp about, eh? Well, if you change your mind, wire me. I'll give you one month. One month to the day. How's the work, Philip? We've all been dying to know. Hey, eh, Sally? Oh, it's not too bad. Dr. South's offered me a partnership. Oh, how wonderful. But I've, I've turned him down. I'm set on traveling now. I'm sick of the things and places I know. I don't want to work on the same old hacking coughs year in and year out. Splendid. Off to the South Seas. That's the spirit. Right, Sally? If you say so, Father. But I don't see anything wrong with England. <laughs> no, not this part of it anyway. We always spend two weeks down here in Kent harvesting the hop fields. It pays its own way, and it's a delightful holiday. Here now, Sally, you take Philip off and uh, show him how hops are picked. Get on now. It's picked for your supper out here. <laughs> so you don't approve of my traveling, eh, Sally? No, I don't. I'd much rather have you stay about. Oh, would you really? Oh, never mind that now. We've got to get to the picking. You see, Mr. Carey, you sort of tickle the blossoms off. It wants soft hands. Oh, you pick them so easily. Oh, you be careful, though. A doctor doesn't want to bruise his hands, does he? 
You do like to take care of people, don't you? I've always liked you. I didn't know that. I knew. That day you came when you didn't have anything to eat. Oh, I say, uh, how can you? I'm I'm insignificant and and crippled and and ordinary and ugly. Oh, you're an old silly. That's what you are. Should you like to kiss me now? I think so. How old are you, Sally? Nineteen. You seem ever so much older than that. (laughs) Father calls me a Saxon temperament, but then he's always predicting I shall grow fat. Father thinks a great deal of you. Sally, might I kiss you again? Perhaps we'd best take a walk after dinner. If we don't pick any hops this afternoon, well, it it will look awfully funny. You've been awfully quiet, Philip. I'm afraid. I'm afraid that if I say anything, I shall ask you to marry me. But what about your plans to travel? Heaven knows you were frightfully keen on the South Seas. I I don't know. Sally, I've been starved for beauty. And I fancy I thought that I'd have to go to the ends of the earth to find it. Well, now I... I don't think I have to. Yes? I've been in love, you know. But it was ugly and I... I didn't want it again. But it's... It's changed. I... (laughs) Oh, enough of talking... Sally, you will marry me? If you like. Oh, don't you want to? It's about time I settled down. Oh, but you don't want to marry me. Oh, there's no one else I would marry. (laughs) Then that settles it. Oh, Sally, people aren't ugly anymore. Everybody has some deformity, I suppose. A a weakness, a sickness, a body or mind. They can't help themselves. But you've got to accept the good in them, you know, and, and be patient with their faults. And... Phil, dear. Yes? You've talked enough now. It's time to go back home. The curtain of the NBC University Theater falls on our dramatization of the Somerset Mom novel of Human Bondage, the eighth in this series of radio plays based on outstanding works in modern Anglo-American fiction. The radio adaptation was by Ernest Canoy. Our intermission commentator was Mr. Clifton Fadiman. Our stars were Brian Ahern, now being seen in Smart Woman with Constance Bennett, and Angela Lansbury, who is currently starred with Lana Turner, Gene Kelly, and June Allison, and Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer's Technicolor production, The Three Musketeers. Our cast included Eric Snowden, Dan O'Herlihy, Monty Margetts, Donald Morrison, Constance Cavendish, and Alec Harford. Your director was Andrew C. Love. Original music for Of Human Bondage was composed by Albert Harris and conducted by Henry Russell. This program came to you from Hollywood. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. The NBC University Theater and W. Somerset Maugham's Of Human Bondage, starring Dame Angela Lansbury, who turned 94 last week. It brings us to the end of the big broadcast tonight. 
For co-producer Jill Arold Bailey and audio engineer Douglas Bell, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. I love to spend each Sunday with you as friend of friend. I'm sorry it's true. I'm telling you just how I feel. I hope you feel that way too. Let's make a date for next Sunday night. I'm here to stay. Twill be my delight. To sing again, bring again the things you want me to. I love to spend each Sunday with you. Hi, this is Chris Thiele. Now that the kids have their own car, what do you do with the training wheels? If you have an unused vehicle, donate it to us. We'll pick it up, turn it into more great public radio, and you might qualify for a tax deduction. Find out more at wamu.org slash cars.